0: Hello, my name is Rick Tenenbaum and I'll be having a conversation with Buzz Slutsky for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is June 29th, 2017, and this is being recorded at the New York Public Library's Muhlenberg branch in the teen space upstairs. <laughs> Hi, Buzz.
1: Hi, Rick.
0: Um, so could you first introduce yourself with yeah. uh, maybe age, um, pronouns, gender identity, what have you?
1: Sure. My name is Buzz Slutsky. I'm 28 years old. I'm about to turn 29 pretty soon. Um, my pronouns are they, them, and Well, when I first came out, I identified as genderqueer and now we have the word non-binary, so that seems all the better. Cool. Yeah. I'm sure more words will come in and make themselves relevant to my life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So now, um, I guess first just tell me a little bit about where you're born, your upbringing.
1: Yeah so I was born in Overland Park Kansas outside of Kansas City to Allison and Richard Slutsky who um, and I'm, I'm a second child I have an older brother who's also trans named Dane and um, I was born in 1988 and um, you know I'm born into an upper-middle-class Ashkenazi Jewish family. Um, my dad originally is from Omaha, Nebraska, and my mom is from Fort Worth, Texas. So um, they met in, at Washington University in St. Louis and had a lot in common because they were both from cow towns, as they call it, like, you know, um, in small Jewish communities. And also they were both significantly younger than their other siblings but had really different experiences with that. Um, and we moved to New Jersey when I was 10 months old. So I really don't remember Kansas at all. I used to joke that if, um, that, you know, my parents could have been lying to me and I wouldn't have known. Like, so I, what my first video piece actually was um, a talk show where it was sort of like based on, I don't know, like Maury Povich or some, you know, some tacky talk show where my two selves, like, like it was kind of sci-fi. It was like, there was a fabric of space and time that split. And in one side, like, I stayed in Kansas and grew up there. And then on the other side, I grew up in New Jersey and my two selves met. And for some reason in my mind, they both sang, they both had to sing songs. And so the Kansas one sang Stay by Lisa Loeb. I don't know why. This was just my instinct when I was, you know, 20 and, um, and then the, the, the New Jersey one was like super like punk rock dyke. This was like before, you know, I was identifying as trans and, and there was like this song called I Fucked Your Girlfriend by Chicks on Speed, but I found, I think it was by Chicks on Speed, but I found the lyrics in an old Riot Girl zine of my friends. And so I did it. Without... I didn't really think of it as a rap. I wasn't really thinking of it as, like, I'm appropriating whatever black culture. But I, like, kind of spoke the lyrics because I didn't know what the tune was just because I didn't have that information. And I used my, like, electronic keyboard I had bought at a toy store as, like, the beat. It was, like, really silly. Anyway, that's my... You can watch it. It's on YouTube, I think. Um, How old were you when you
0: created that? I was...
1: It was 2009, it was spring 2009, and I was 20, about to turn 21. And, um, yeah, I'll get to that. But anyway, so yeah, I um, I grew up in New Jersey in a town called Maplewood, which is the same community as South Orange. Like, Maplewood and South Orange share a school system. They also share, um, like, the, the Jewish community – it, like, the synagogues there, there, it was very much, like, both. Like, there were two synagogues that shared a Hebrew school. So I kind of always felt like two synagogues were one synagogue, two towns were one town. It was a very, like, hybridized place. Also, um, Maplewood South Orange is, you know, kind of known for being a very racially and economically diverse suburb as far as suburbs go. Like, usually suburbs you think of, like, extremely homogenous or, like, you know, everyone's the same class or race. Um, but, you know, I went to a Jewish preschool and then, and you know, most of the people there were Ashkenazi Jews, not all of them. And then, like, from K through 12, it was, like, totally mixed. Although every, like, elementary school was ex- was totally mixed. Middle school, there was a little bit of leveling. Like, they would sort kids out into different classes based on their, like, presumed like academic level. And of course that was racialized. And then it got even more racialized in high school with like even more tracking and leveling. But in high school, um, my, my class year had, um, been the first, you know, when we were freshmen in high school, it was the first year of the new principal who was a white Jewish woman. And she was always saying really problematic things. Like if she, like one time she came downstairs into the lunchroom, and started yelling at everybody and was like speaking Ebonics to like the black kids. And it was super offensive. And then all this, I mean, just like, it was like, you know, all these different incidents, like a lot of people were experiencing being placed in low academic tracks, even though they were academically capable of being in honors just because of being black or Brown. Um, and I think people were just tired of it. And, um, so in 2006, when we were all seniors, we, I mean, I didn't help organize it, but I was like part of, you know, white people that were like, yeah, let's do that. Um, the Martin Luther King Association organization, which was like mostly black students, um, organized this walkout for racial justice and, you know, against all the racism we were seeing in our school. And like three quarters of the school walked out. It was like a really big success. Amiri Baraka spoke because... Like, it's, like, a really interesting town. Like, um, I guess Amiri Baraka's grandkid was one of my classmates, which I was not aware of at the time. Um, also, like, we would always see this orange Hummer drive by, and everyone was like, that's why Clef's car. Like, why Clef's on? Because, um, like, Lauren Hill went to my high school. Yeah, like, Lauren Hill's cheerleading coach was my health teacher. Her name was Miss Wright. She had these long dreadlocks. And she was the first person that ever said to us, like, Sex feels good, and that it's like something you should cherish and just not do yet. And I was like, "Wow!" Like she was like, you know, she had she had been at Woodstock. Like she was like a really cool lady. Anyway, it was a really it was a really interesting place to grow up because also there was you know there were these like it was like a microcosm of the United States in a way. Not that every group was you know um, present or whatever, but. Like, there were debates growing up about whether the... Like, in in my high school, they they outlawed the choir and the orchestra and everything from playing any holiday music. Like, even, like, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Because, I guess, there had been debates about, like, there being too much kind of, like, Christian hegemony in the music. And then the Christians were probably... It seems like what happened was they were like, well, if we don't get to have, like you know, whatever, then we should just not do anything. So, and then that made national headlines. Like there were all these, always these, you know, big debates and headlines coming out of Maplewood South Orange. But what, I forget whether I said the the superintendent resigned the day after the big walkout. Um, yeah, it was a really big deal. And then the, and the prison, the uh, principal didn't come back to school. Like she was too afraid. There was all this stuff happening. Like it was such an intense time. And, um, like, my poetry teacher was having a nervous breakdown. It was just, like, such an intense time. Uh, like, I remember going to a lot of school board meetings to support different causes, which I had never done before. So, anyway, that was sort of um, part of my politicization. And then also, um, you know, just being queer in high school was really confusing because, you know... So I came from a family that could afford to send me to programs that interested me in the summer which I was really lucky and fortunate to have and so I would go to these like art artsy weird kid programs and be like oh wow I'm like attracted to like all these different kinds of people like gender wise and then I'd come back to school and like not really have a lot of those feelings because it was this kind of like enforced heterosexual place so I would date these like kind of like in my eyes like femi boys who I could have these like queer relationships with but people would be like is your boyfriend gay? Or no, they, no, 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 that's not what they would... They, they, they go, is your boyfriend a male model? Which I feel like the subtext was like, is your boyfriend gay? And then I always wanted to be like, no, but I am. You know what I mean? Like, it was really silly. But but no, in high school, I was very, like, um, high femme in, like, a silly... Like, I thought it was, like, this, like, fun, silly thing. I would, like, make a lot of my clothes and, like, put bows on things. And, like, it was kind of like a little girl thing. And then I think I... At a certain point, I was like, but I don't know how to transition from that to, like, a woman. Like, that really didn't make sense to me. And um, I talk a lot lot about that with my partner lately. Like, you know, being a girl feels easier than being a woman or something. Because, like, being a woman, you just have to be – it's, like, serious. It's, like, you have to be this, like, serious adult. And a girl, like, you can be kind of, like – it can be, like, a weird, fun, silly thing. I don't know. Anyway, um – Let me go back though. So my whole childhood, I was always drawing. Um, My mom went back to school for psychology when I was a kid. And if I was sick and couldn't go to school, she would a lot of times bring me with her to class um, in Newark. She, She went to Rutgers, Newark. And so I would be like sitting in the back of these lecture rooms with a big box of Mr. Sketch markers do you know those? Like, they, each of them smell like a different thing. Like, they're, one of them smells like licorice. Like, they all have different colors that they smell like. It kind of, I don't really know how colors can smell. It's strange. I have to go look, look back at that. That's, like, a big root for me with drawing. Because, I mean, I also have been drawing with markers a lot in the past few years. But anyway, um, so I'd have this, like, big box of markers, and I would be, like, terrified of making too much noise because I didn't want people to look at me. Because that day that my mom brought me, the lecture was about penis envy. And I was, like, she was, like, mortified. She was, like, this is, like, the worst possible day to bring a child to class. But I was just, like, drawing, like, pretty ladies in my book in the back. It was so funny. But anyway, um, when I was a kid, I really wanted to be, like, the best at drawing. Like, that was a big part of my identity. Um, my grandma on my mom's side was an artist. And she she did, you know, drawing and painting, printmaking, sculpture, um, you know, all, everything. And um, everybody always said, ever since I was little, I, I never remember people not saying this, being like, oh, like Buzz takes so much after Grandma Sib, you know, um, and my grandma was still co- quite cognizant when I was young. Um, I mean, I have this memory of her drawing an eye on one side of the page, and she wanted me to draw the other eye. And so she was trying to get me to, like, in my mind, kind of, like, flip the image, and she was very encouraging of me. Um, but she um, got dementia when I was probably, like, between 7 and 10. My mom and I were trying to figure it out. I can't rem- really remember. but um, And then she was pretty much, like, you know, in a vegetative kind of state for many years. And then she died in 2005. Um, and then... I'll just keep going with this topic. When my grandpa died, when her husband, um, my grandpa Jerry died in 2010, he was a very small man. Like, that whole side of the family is very little. If You can't see on this recording, but I'm, like, five one and 1⁄2". I'm very small. And, um, like, I'm tall for that side of the family, if you can imagine. My mom is, now she's 4'11". Like, she's, like, oh, my God, so little. But anyway, so when my grandpa died, it was, like, around the same time my brother and I were sort of like exploring trans identity and all of a sudden we got to like kind of keep a lot of his clothing that fit us and was like it was very like 70s golf like florida golf kind of clothes like a lot of like members only like it was like kind of perfect for the sort of like tacky hipster look of like 2010 and um you know it was like a nice way to remember my grandpa by too like like Like, you know, when we were sort of exploring our queerness, our parents were often like, let's, like, not tell grandma and grandpa what's going on. Like, we don't know what their response... They were trying to, like, protect us from, like, our grandparents' presumed homo and transphobia. And... But then, like, actually, our grandpa really, like, helped us find our, like, fashion voice in a really interesting way.
0: Um... How old were you
1: and your brother at that time? So my brother is two years and nine months older than me. I turned 22 in in July 2010. So I guess we were like, so it was like August. So I was 22 and he was about to turn 25. So yeah. And then um, I don't know that we officially were like, these are our name and pronouns like I kind of it's getting a little hazy for me at what point all of that happened. But I'm pretty sure that we had the official conversation with our parents in Portland, Oregon in like June 2011. I think that's when that happened. Um, my, my brother lives in Portland, so it, it had to be like during a family visit or whatever. But then um, my parents live in New Jersey still. And so and I'm super close with them especially my mom, and so, you know, after my brother and I came out, I kind of spent a lot of time like explaining it all to my parents, because I think, you know, my brother went to Wellesley College and, you know, women's college, and he started exploring trans identity academically. He, was, he did his senior thesis on zines that trans people made about their medical, ex- you know, experiences with like medical stuff. And kind of critiquing doctors and, like, the medicalization of transness and all that. Um, and just also, like, networking about, like, procedures and and experiences. Um, and so that was, like, sort of his way of doing it. And so when he approached my parents, the way he said it was, I'm trans-identified. And I think that they were just like, what? Like, I think, you know, there all of the the, like, mainstream ideas about transness, like, a person trapped in a body... Like, I think my mom knew that, like, those narratives didn't really make sense to her. And, um, like, I certainly don't feel like I'm in anything trapped in a body. I definitely had a pretty feminine experience because I'm a, I'm a pretty feminine person. Like, I don't, you know, I'm, I, I definitely have, like, a coexistence of, like, gender energy or whatever. And I think um, my brother is similar. Like, we've always, you know, growing up, we were always the girls. We always had, like, the same the same like jewelry or, you know, things like that. And, um, it's not, it's not surprising to me that we had such a like parallel coming out experience because I mean, it, it was interesting cause it really happened separately. Like I was at Sarah Lawrence and he was getting his, he was in Boston getting his post back in computer science, um, at, um, the hell the Brandeis. And um, we would be, like, on the phone during spring break. You know, none of my housemates were around. Except for my one housemate who ended up also being trans, which is really funny because we never talked about it at the time. But, um, and I was like, he was like, I think I'm trans. And I was like, me too. I've been hanging out with all these trans people in New York. And, but it was, you know, I think he might have, he might have, like, said that while I was thinking about it. And then later I was like, yeah, me too. I don't know exactly, but... Um, yeah, it's, I don't know, we're just sort of, I don't have any explanation for that. It's just sort of like, like, I have a very spiritual perspective of, like, souls and everything, more than a lot of people, so I definitely believe that, like, my soul chose my family, and that, like, this was, these are all the lessons I, my soul, like, needed to learn on my journey or whatever, and I'm sure that, like, it's helpful for both of us to like have another person in our family you know I think it's like a nice thing even though I mean of course we have slightly different experiences like my brother was on T for a few years I've never been on T, but I had top surgery and he didn't so we kind of had like different strategies for gender stuff um I kind of went back and forth a lot but oh yeah so and also I should say that um in high school my brother and I were that was like our closest time like um he had this poetry club with his friends and they were super inclusive of me like when we were kids I think the age difference he was a little bit like go away like you're annoying and then in high school we were kind of finally in the same maturity level and and his friends were like him and his friends were like very welcoming of me and so um I always kind of spent a lot of time with People older than me, I think partially because I had an older sibling and anyway, we started doing this poetry group and workshopping each other's poetry. And I think that's really where I started learning about writing and, and how to work with a community of writers and, um, and also kind of like an emotional support for each other. But, um, but I was also getting a lot of encouragement from, from art teachers, both in my public school, which had like amazing arts it was really amazing. Anyway, um, and then like the summer programs and everything. So, yeah, my family was really supportive of me growing up.
0: And what was your high school called?
1: Oh, it was called Columbia High School. It's it's um, it's about I think like two thousand five hundred students. It but it's physically in Maplewood, but it's the Maplewood South Orange School District, and um, just for fun, I went to South Orange Middle School and. South Mountain Elementary School, just for fun. (laughs) But, um, yeah. Any other questions for now?
0: I guess, um, during high school, Mm. what were your interactions with um, other peers like?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I was... Well, my high school was, like, really weirdly not... Like, I was saying to you before... My college, I felt like, was way clickier than my high school. Like, my high school, I felt like it was so diverse and everybody was sort of just into what they were into. Like, my, I don't know about other people, but my experience of it was that no one, there was no cool group because everybody was cool in their own way. And, and like, you know, I'm sure there was bullying, but I really experienced more bullying in late elementary school from people that I had been really close friends with before. Like, more, like, backstabbing girl kind of crap. Like, I, I didn't, like, in high school, I don't know whether it was just that I was, like, a cool, weird art kid that, like, nobody really wanted to mess with me, but um, I kind of, I hung out a lot with the kids that were interested in um, experimental music and indie rock and stuff. Like, a lot of my friends were in bands, and, but, like, um, mo- mostly I really, and I also really connected with um, the kind of social justice crowd of kids, like, I was really involved with this group called Anytown, which, um, is like kind of like a national nonprofit that does like diversity. It's like, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know. It's sort of like an anti-abression training without any of the tools. It's just kind of like to, to be like, wow, like you have privilege or not, you know, um, and then they would, like... But it was, it was like, delegations of... St- like, little groups of students would go to these camps over the summer for a few days and kind of have their minds blown or whatever, talk to each other about their experiences. And then we would all go back to our school and try to, like, make change somehow. Um, and that was, like, a really frustrating experience because they didn't really give us the tools for that. But I suspect that they didn't actually want us to change anything, which was weird. I'm not really sure. It's interesting. But, I mean, whatever. I think... Um, oh, yeah, and then I, I also was one of the co-presidents of the spectrum, which was, like, the queer... We didn't use the word queer at the time, but it was, like, the Gay-Straight Alliance. Um, and then, like, me and the other person that ran it at the time were both identifying as, like, bisexual. And then um, we had a lot of, like... I don't know. I think that was also another situation where we felt really, like, underprepared to deal with kind of, like, the amount of trauma and desperation students were coming in with as far as like they were getting a lot of um backlash from their families and I yeah I I was like totally unaware of how to deal with that since you know I didn't have any personal wisdom because my family was like pretty accepting so um but um but yeah I found some really nice friendships there and like that's also how I found just support from teachers like I think like I feel like you know like, uh, I had spent so much time with my brother and his friends, especially because I, gr- I had grown up with some of those kids. And so when they when they all graduated when I was at the end of my sophomore year, I did have like good friends in my class year, but I never really felt quite part of like a clique or something. And so um, I think like I would sometimes like eat lunch in the art room and the art teachers were like super nice and accommodating and. I sort of felt like I connected better with people older than me a lot of the time, um, but I, I still am close with some of my high school friends. I think that looking back on it, they were more accepting than I realized, or like, or maybe they're accept they're more accepting now because they know more about what things are or something. You know, what's what's what and who's who.
0: Accepting in which ways?
1: Like. Um, like, I remember when I graduated high school, I stopped talking to my high school friends because I was like, I'm exploring my queer identity and like, I don't want to feel like pressure to be who I used to be. And same, same exact thing when I graduated college, but about trans stuff. Like, I think every time I graduated from something, I kind of cut off myself from those people. And then in the past few years, I've been like, oh, actually, like, let me reconnect with folks because like. I think that the fear was greater than the reality of, you know, of, of people's, like, biases or expectations of me, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, I feel I feel really lucky that, you know, like, a number of my high school friends are, they all ended up in, like, public health and stuff, which is really funny, but one of them is, like, super dedicated towards, like, you know, expanding like, reproductive health to include, like, trans-mask people. And that's really... You know, th- like, these are really nice people that are r- really thinking about feminism and queerness in a way that, like, I never expected, especially because some of them weren't out, and so I had no idea of knowing that, like, we were both queer or whatever. So, yeah. Um, and then um, when I got to college, I became really close friends with... Um, some people that were doing, that were really active in the feminist organization on campus. And, um, what was it, called? it was called flux, which at the, which like didn't really stand for it. Like we kept like coming up with different things of what it stood for. It was like feminism, liberation, unity, xylophone. Like it was kind of silly, but, um, so yeah, I got involved with that right away because they were making zines and I wanted to be like drawing in a way that was like politically relevant Um, and the campaign work we did was mostly around sexual assault prevention and, um, like basically the, we figured out like one of, one of my classmates had been sexually assaulted the summer before, but when she got to school, there were no resources for her and all of the different, um, offices were saying, go to that office, go to that office. And, um, it was, like, really traumatic for her. And so we um, we were... Basically, we put up signs around campus that had all of these forearms with fists at the end, like, punching across the page. And then in between the forearms, it said, do you know what to do if you're sexually assaulted? Because the SLC administration doesn't. And they got so upset. And so they were like, okay, like, well, like, come talk to us. Like, we'll do what you want or whatever. And ultimately they didn't have like quote unquote enough money or whatever. I mean, the school literally didn't have an endowment until like you know, the 70s. Like they are they don't have a lot of money. The school. <laughs> Sarah Lawrence. Um anyway, it's I mean, it's like so ironic cuz it's like a very wealthy it's like a very like elite institution, but but it I don't know. I guess they try to whatever like balance out like scholarships with People who can pay. I don't know. Whatever. So they they didn't have money to allocate for, like, a specific person that we wanted them to hire for all the sexual assault-related stuff. Um, But they did let us, like, really, like, rewrite the policy, like, the sexual assault policy. And so we tried to do one that was, like, based on the Antioch policy of, like, consent at every step and whatever. Which is, like, I think the best you can do in a college. Like, I think that that work is really important. I think a lot of people have like, are like, well, I don't know if like consent models are like really that practical, like privately, I don't think people publicly, like no one that I respect publicly. So anyway, Mm -hmm. I'm just doing it aside, but like, um, anyway, um, and then one of my friends from that time ended up like really professionalizing in that area and like ended up being, being that sexual assault person, prevention person at, um, the university of Austin, In Texas so that was really cool like being able to see how like something we did together really propelled her into her career Um, but yeah so that was sort of my crew I also organized through that group a lot of little shows and stuff like I had different bands come to campus and sometimes they would sleep in my living room that was really fun I had Mika Miko and um, pre like pre I think pre opened for Mika Miko or something and I was like obsessed with Mika Miko I was so excited and my dear friend Spencer, who ended up passing away in 2008, he showed up to the, the show late because he thought he was, like, be, you know, being cool and, like, showing. But he ended up missing the whole thing. <laughs> I felt so bad. Oh, I miss him. But um, And then I also brought, well, my friend Megan brought Kimya Dawson and Mary Timoney. And like it was really fun. We because we did have like activities fees we could use or whatever. So we kind of figured out how to use the system of like the student activities council or whatever, to bring like really rad people. And then my senior year, I brought this like it was called. Um, oh, and we we always organized the the gender fuck symposium like ever since my first year. And I remember the I we Megan and I we laughed so hard because we were trying to come up for names for this like gender fuck symposium or like all the different events. And I love naming things. Like I'm really into puns and like wacky languaging. And so we called our dance, the Nancy pants barn dance. And we had like a kissing booth. Like we got really into the theme. It was really silly, but one of the runners up was called Rimo Rama. (laughs) It was so silly, but um, yeah, Megan and I had a lot of fun. And then, um, Yeah. And, oh, yeah, and then my senior year, I brought um, world-famous Bob, Dave and and Glenn Marla, and they called themselves... Ah, uh, what was it called? It was, like, the gender something. But anyway, um, it was, like, a very gender-weirdo-centric performance evening, and I was really proud of that. Um, yeah, so that's kind of... Oh, yeah, and then, of course, I... Um, my first year, I also joined SDS, which was, like, student... It was the reboot of Students for a Democratic Society, which was, like, um, like a broad-based leftist, you know, multi-issue student movement in the 60s that famously was, um, I guess, like, taken over by the, the Weather Underground. Like, basically, the Weather Underground had stolen all of the record of all of the um, membership records and they burned it all. And they basically like forced everybody into this like kind of militant organization. Um, And it's kind of ironic because so SDS was rebooted in 2006 on Martin Luther King day by also a lot of like white students at like private colleges. It was like, it was like a very similar, I mean it wasn't all private colleges and it wasn't all white students, but it really suffered from a lot of the same problems of like, you know, patriarchy and white supremacy and, like, heteronormativity that, like, the previous 1960s organization had. And, um, like, you know, I was really active in the... I was more active... In, I started in um, the fall of 2006, I guess, and then I got really active in 2007. It was, like, a very big part of my social life um, where I, w- I would, like, drive multiple hours to, like, different conferences to, like you know work on these like anti-war projects with other universities Um, and I was really active in the women's caucus and then that was like when I first encountered people that use they them as their pronouns and and like and also um, like I did this other anti-person training called the peacemaker training institute that I found out about through SDS I think And that was, like, the first time I heard a trans man explain, like, surgeries. I think he was just so fed up with people asking him that he was like, I'm just going to give you this really quick lecture on trans surgery so that you don't ask me again. Like, I was just like, oh, my God. And so, like, you know, that whole year I was like, oh, like, I kind of like these people. Like, sort of, hmm, could part of me be, like, part of them? Um, But I, I sort of didn't really like actively I didn't really find anyone that like saw that in me or that I really identified with until later in college but I'll get to that
0: at these conferences when you're meeting these people mm-hmm. um, did you get to have like one-on-one talks were you yeah. them, or was it more just that brief contact yeah
1: there were like one there were totally one-on-ones and also like you know, we would all party together. Like, my first threesome or whatever was with these people. You know, so there was... Yeah, I made a lot of friends. I think it was really important to me in college... In, especially in the first few years of college... That all my friends be radical. Like, I was really like... Everyone needs to be radical. And, like, I'm judging everybody who's not radical. Like, it was, like, very... I was super, like, stuck up about it.
0: What did a radical mean to you? Uh,
1: yeah, that's such a good question. I guess, like... um you know, you had to be against the war in Iraq, in Iraq, and um, you had to like, I don't know, want to have conversation, I guess want wanting to have conversations about things like, like if you, like, for example, like if you saw a movie, you wouldn't be mad if someone was like, wow, I found this part of it really problematic, you know what I mean, or like, Or I guess I could, you know what it was? It was, like, I could trust that someone wouldn't, like, I don't know, make me feel shitty for, like, being queer or, or at the time, like, being, you know, like, female-identified or whatever. Or, I don't know. I think it was just, like, a feeling of safety that you were with, like, like like-minded people. But I definitely remember, like, my parents took me and my brother and my brother-in-law to see, um... What was that Avatar? I guess this was more in like this was like two thousand ten, I'm pretty or maybe nine, and um, and it was so fucked up because it was all three D. So you had to have this like like you you were like leaning back and looking up, and you had these goggles on, and your body was like like it was like even more even more like out of body than like a regular cinematic experience where like you're supposed to just be like living through this like kind of eye of the camera. And experiencing yourself through, like, the cinematic time or whatever. Because you had to, like, be forced into this, like, 3D world. And then the whole plot of the movie was that there was also a person being embodied into another body through this, like, avatar. And it was this really colonialist narrative where they were, like, taking over this planet. Or, I can't really remember. Or maybe this island. Or, I don't know. But, like, I found it extremely colonialist. And then so, like, after the movie... My parents were, and it was expensive, you know, it was like maybe $15 more than usual. And they were like, what do you think? And we were all like, I was, I was like, that was so fucked up. (laughs) And I think my brother and his partner were like, yeah, but like, you know, like those kind of divisions, I guess I were like a really big deal for me, like really alienating. Um, I can't remember what else, but anyway.
0: What what about sex? What about, did sex also like play a role in? the radicalism
1: or at least um
0: how did that play into like the space well like, of, like sex at Sarah
1: comments? Lawrence was like so fraught and disappointing. Like it was such a small school that it was really rare for people to have sex because you really like needed friends more than anything. And and like so for example, okay, so like the you know it was the school is 70% female assigned at birth. And um, you know, that's so there's a lot of straight women that are fighting for fighting each other for this like very small portion of straight men, and then the straight men get to act however they want and still get laid like every day of their lives, and and like they have this like really skewed idea of like what the world is like because obviously, outside of the world, outside of Sarah Lawrence, that's that's not what's gonna happen, and then you know, there's like the gay people also are like how do we have sex with each other like it's a it's just like a really you have to you have to run into everybody so many times a day that like if you're going to sleep with someone like it might be really awkward for a while if it doesn't go great so you know i had my first girlfriend when i was 19 and she was like a year younger than me and i think i was like really attracted to her but like i think i I think it it wasn't like a it wasn't like you know it wasn't like a love connection I'm sure but I think like I was just like desperate for it to be like a bigger relationship than it was because there were just few so few options it's like a, a lot of pressure was put onto relationships you know um, and then like you know there were times when like I was like in love with my male friend who didn't understand you know I've had a lot of experiences where like like, people were, like, identifying as, like, straight men and, like, didn't understand me being attracted to them and, like, what that meant. Or they were gay men or, or queer male-assigned people. And, like, it was, like, what do we do with... Like, I think there's... It just gets confusing sometimes for people. Um, I don't know. I had, like, a little bit of sex at Sarah Lawrence. I don't think that anyone had a lot of sex at Sarah Lawrence. I think I was, I was very lucky to have sex at Sarah Lawrence at all. Um... And then, like, I had this really good friend that I was friends with the whole time. And in the beginning, she, like, had a crush on me. and We kind of had, like, an art connection. Like, we were both interested in the same, like, kind of feminist art tradition. Um, and then, like, we ended up dating briefly my junior year. But, like, she was having a lot of mental health problems. And so it was better for me to just be, like, a supportive person for her. And that was, like, fine. And we're still friends. And, you know, that's nice. Um, But I had, so I had this best friend who was like a femme cis woman and her idea of queer relationships was a femme cis woman and a trans man. And she had this very kind of butch femme narrow idea of queer sex. And so as I was kind of like coming into my queer identity, I kind of felt for at least like a year or two, like that had to be my framework. And so I think that I, I really tried that. I really gave it my all. Like I gave it a lot. Like I try. I tried really hard to like be this like femme cis girl that dated trans men. But then like through, you know, I finally, whatever, like had sex with a trans man at the end of 2009. And then like when I was actually there with him, I was like, you know, I've always, I kind of admitted to him. I was like, I've always kind of felt this like kind of like faggy side and he was like, oh, yeah, I totally see that. And, like, he really validated it for me. And then, you know, he kind of... Well, like, we're friends again also, actually. But there was a period where, like, you know, his ex-girlfriend came back in his life and, like, whatever. He was kind of in this place where he was really interested in, like, butch-femme dynamics. And I think that, like, I, I kind of did never really fit into that enough for him either. Even though, whatever, we became kind of, like, trans-mask buds later on. Like, when, finally when I moved to Brooklyn... Um, just cause we ended up being neighbors weirdly. Like it was, it was cute. Um, and then, and then the friend that was trying to push me into being a femme cis woman fell in love with him. And then like, oh, it was, you know, there were all these times when like my friendships were, my, my friend group dynamics were threatened by like, you know, this idea that like, I have to have a trans man. And I have to get him drunk. Like, there was, like, a lot of that coming from my friend. So um, I would say that, like, even though I really cherish that friendship and the time that we had together, like, it really... Like, it, it, at the same time it introduced me to trans people, it also, like, prevented me from really being able to, like, access my own narrative within transness, I guess. and like have, And, like, being able to have, like, trans community in a way. But, uh, you know, whatever. I I do miss her in a lot of ways because, like, we had so much, like, activism together. But um, I definitely am happy that, like, I've found people now that, like... Like, so... Okay, so here's what happened. So I was was a senior at Sarah Lawrence. There was an event that came to town called the Tranny Roadshow, and it was, like, all these different trans performers... It was like a cabaret act kind of and um i had seen a lot of youtube videos that year from red Durkin and like charlie arp and julie blair like the three of them like because red and julie had known each other in bloomington and like they had wor- later i found out they had worked at this bake shop together i forget exactly how they met but they started making all these videos together about being trans and then they, like, went to the Bay Area to visit Charlie. I don't know. I had seen these videos that, like, there was this one that was, like, um, this would have never happened if I wasn't a transsexual. Like, there all, it was, like, these comedy videos about, like, fun, like, you know, how hard it is to take out the trash when you're trans or things like that. Um, and so those kind of went viral because it was, like, the first time trans people were, like, using YouTube to make fun of, like, cis normativity. And everybody was, like, really excited about that. Um, there was like a kind of new vocabulary or, or media happening for trans people. And then, um, I went to that show and for some reason I started talking to red and I was like, Hey red, like I've been thinking a lot about, Oh yeah. I was sort of in my mind, in the back of my mind, I was making fun of my friend who was really fetishizing trans men and and ironically, like kind of, you know, creating these really, like, sexual pressure on them, even though we had done all this, like, sexual assault prevention. It was, like, really fucked up. But anyway, um, I was, like, I was thinking a lot about Greece 2 and how um, um, the, the like, femme woman sings this whole song called Cool Rider about, you know, there's this, like, preppy guy that's into her. He's, like, Australian. There's always this, like, whatever, white outsider person. And then... Um, And then she's like, but I want a cool rider. Like, I want, like, a motorcycle guy. And so she sings this whole song about how, like, I don't want no ordinary guy coming on strong with me. No, no, no. So I told Red, I was like, I kind of feel like that song is secretly about how she needs a trans man. And Red was like, oh, my God, you need to be friends with my friend Julie. And so um, she gave me Julie Blair's email address, and we started G-chatting. Everyone was still using, like, Google Chat. And, um... So even before we met, I was just like all the time talking to Julie and I just felt like she was like a breath of fresh air and she like totally got like all of my... Like she just was a, such a genius and she had so many ideas about culture that were so funny and like making fun of gender stuff. And um, and so when we finally hung out, so her boyfriend at the time, Tom Leger, was running this um, performance space out of his living room called Collect Pond. Collect Pond is like historically like this... Pond in the middle of Manhattan where people would get their water, so he named it after that because it was like, we're gonna get water and like, you know, feel hydrated by like trans and queer community. It was cute, but anyway, so I went to that apartment and like met her and like saw this performance. I I started like volunteering, for the performance space. But Julie and I would just go in the back and like laugh and make fun of trans men. <laughs> but she she really like kind of was the first person that saw me as like a gender weirdo like like she she could see it in me in a way that like I had never I had never really had as close of a relationship with a trans person I had like I would met you know I had roommates that their best friend was trans but they were always like butch in this way I never really related to and um anyway like I Julie made it possible for me to like be still femme and also be trans and I was like oh that makes sense and um she introduced me to Wesley flash who is another friend of mine. Who's he's like a, you know, like a gay trans man. Like I'd never met a gay trans man before. And, um, actually, so this podcast of Morgan and page, the one from the Vaults, she has an episode on Lou Sullivan, who was like the first like out trans, like gay trans man. And he created a lot of community. Like he was a big person that was like, went out there and was like, Trans men can be gay, like you know. Th- it's not like everyone's transitioning so we can be straight, and so that's interesting to look at. Anyway, um, it would have been so cool to know about him at the time, but of course, like trans history is so esoteric and tucked away. Um, blah blah blah. Oh yeah. So so the so Julie and Wesley were really like the people that helped me sort of figure out my identity, and I I started, like, mascaraing my mustache at school, and, like, I would go to the library with a mascara mustache, and I'd come home and be like, wow, nothing happened, and, like, take it off, and then, like, go to class. I don't know. I was, like, wearing a lot of bows in my hair and, like, pencil skirts. I just sort of went straight from that into, like, like, at first I tried to, like, wear butch clothes, and something about it, I just felt so gross, like, wearing baggy pants. I was like, ugh, and so it sort of took me a while, but And then like, so I moved to Brooklyn. Oh, I forgot to say the whole thing about, okay. So is this okay? I'm just going. Okay. So summer of 2009. Okay. So let me back up a little bit. So my first year of college, I studied like religion and painting and I was sort of like, what? And I also, I took this sociology class that where I first saw Paris is burning. That was amazing. My, my teacher, Shanaz Rouse, props to her. I mean, there's problems with Paris is burning, but it's like you have to see it, you know, to know. Um, and then, and then I started studying like economics and labor policy, like labor studies. And I got so my um, my sophomore year, I got really interested in um, like labor issues, and and that was something I was working on with my friends and like we had like activism we did for class and stuff, and. Um, and then I got like through through that class I got involved with well I, st- I started learning about the um, struggle for domestic workers rights in New York state and and then I found out by with like a really chance encounter I found out about this organization called JFREJ Jews for Racial and Economic Justice and um, they were working on a campaign in solidarity with domestic workers and so they were organizing employers like Jewish white mostly white not I mean I don't want to say that all Jews are white like whatever a lot of Ashkenazi Jews are white. um so like Jewish employers of domestic workers and then like helping you know get like with like Jewish connections I guess like getting the attention of like legislators and then kind of navigating the legislators attention to the stories of domestic workers like there was this whole strategy of like kind of like leveraging privilege in order to like you know, be in solidarity with domestic workers. Because basically, domestic workers and farm workers were the only two groups of workers that were left out of the National Labor Relations Act in the 1930s. And so, and it was because it was like a deal that the North struck with the South. Like, basically, it was like it's, it's like reinstitutionalizing slavery. Like, there didn't have to be labor regulations on domestic and farm workers. So, I was really upset about that. And, um, and I, and I was kind of looking for Jewish community with queer people. Like, I really needed that. And the Jewish community at Sarah Lawrence, like, was it, it, I didn't know if it was really safe to be, like, against Zionism in that space. Because, like, you know, I was really involved with, like, all these radical groups that – there were all these Jews that didn't feel good about apartheid. And, like, we were really upset about what was happening in our names And, um, anyway, so, so finally I found this group, it wasn't working specifically on like anti-Zionist issues, but everybody in the group was anti-Zionist and we're all queer pretty much and working on this amazing labor campaign. So I threw myself into that while I was still at Sarah Lawrence, like I was commuting into the city to go to these meetings. It was, and I was like, I was like 21, like I was like a baby with these like adults that knew everything about organizing, but it was really good for me. It was like my, it was the first time I ever went to queer parties was through Fredge. you know, the first time I like you know, met someone I could, like, buy weed from in New York, or whatever, I probably have said that. whatever, um, you know, yeah. so it was really cool, and um, and I would organize the. I would, t- I would use the Sarah Lawrence, I, I, I got my license within Sarah Lawrence to drive a 15-seater van, and so I would check out vans, and I would drive people up to Albany for these lobby days where we would, like, lobby for domestic workers' rights, but I got so upset all the time because all the students were, like, I have class, like, I, nobody could, like, conceive of, of like, missing class for doing something important for somebody else, and it really upset me, and um, I think I was sort of, I don't know, like, like, I still, I still was part of JFRED my senior year, but a really formative experience I had was um, the summer of 2009, I went, I did this study abroad program called Uh, the Mexico solidarity network. And a lot of my friends from the class, the labor studies class had done the same program. Um, like my friends, Ellery and Megan. And, um, it just seemed like such a cool experience, but I also hadn't really studied Spanish beforehand. So like over the, over the summer, like before I went or something, I took a, oh no, maybe in 2008, summer 2008, I took a Spanish class, like at the new, at the Empire State Building. Like what? It was like a language school in the Empire State Building. But I didn't really—I don't know—I didn't—I didn't really learn that much, and then I don't know why I didn't take it at Sarah Lawrence. I don't know, but I talked to the people at the in the program office, and they were like, "Oh yeah, like Spanish instruction is like part of the program, and, so, and it'll be okay." And then I realized once I got there that the reason they were saying that to me is because they were under enrolled because of the swine flu epidemic that was blamed on Mexico and because of the recession. There. Were, it was supposed to be a, stu- a group of like 18 students, but it ended up only to be four to five. Like there was five four of us that were on the program most of the summer and one extra person that was just there for the um, for the Zapatista educational Center that was like the first three weeks. Um, so I did I did learn a lot of Spanish, but I wasn't comfortable enough speaking because the people on my trip were, like, really, like, really well-spoken in Spanish, but also it really pissed me off because, like, I was, like, I'm so much more radical than them. Like, one of the people there was, like, it's so radical that I, like, work at a coffee shop and we sell fair trade coffee. Like, it was, like, really, like, facepalm level of, like, yeah. wow. Um, and, like, you know, my whole... Sp- I would always say my spiel in Spanish. I'd be, like, you know, I'm... Um, an organ you know a member organizer of like jews for racial and economic justice and we work on domestic workers rights and every single time the zapatistas were like oh there's like jews that care about like leftist struggle and i was like what and i realized everyone all over the world like oppressed people think of jews as all being like huge zionists that are just interested in like state power and i was like fuck my life um so yeah i was like you know i would say my spiel and whatever but I mostly got good at understanding what other people were saying in Spanish. Um, and I'm, I finally got to the point where like, I'm more able to to like make, mis- you know, try and make mistakes. Like one of my best friends is Chilean. And so that's been really good. I don't know, just to like, like I think I realized, oh, I do understand a lot because <laughs> I like overhear what she's saying or whatever. But anyway, um, I'm getting off topic. So anyway, I had this really formative experience talking to my Spanish teacher in Mexico and basically the message that I got from the Zapatistas that were teaching there were that in order to have revolution, you need to create community. And in order to have community, you need art and a light bulb went off for me. I was like, what am I doing trying to do organizing that? Like, I'm not, I'm like not doing a good job at, like I felt, I looked back at my time in JFREG and I was like, I spent so much of that time in that room, like making jokes and like, you know, in, in, in trying to like, bring the community together like making jokes and like making cool banners and stuff and and I would get so upset when I would have organizing failures that it didn't like I just I would get I would get like angry at people I was like I'm really bad at this so when I came back to school in the fall I still remained you know active in JFREG for that year but um most of my instead of instead of doing also like in addition to like printmaking or whatever instead of doing like labor issues or economics, I wasn't, it wasn't my passion, you know, those subjects. It was interesting. I'm glad I know about it and it's come up in my work, but I really dedicated myself to like contemporary art history and sculpture and video and performance and writing and drawing and kind of all the things that I do. And so that, that was like, I think that was really important for me. And, um, and then that next year at Sarah Lawrence, I started really making connections with mentors that, um, That helped me make the transition into living in New York and, you know, being an artist in New York and um, and really finding actually queer art community because so actually so my junior and senior year, I took this class from Janine Olson. Um, She's a lesbian and a sculptor and photographer and um, she teaches at Parsons now but um at the time she taught at sarah she was a visiting art visiting professor at sarah lawrence and i took her class for two whole years and at sarah lawrence you meet individually every other week and so i had like all this one-on-one time with her and so she was like a really important mentor for me and she ended up connecting me with visual aids which is um this organization in new york city that's an archive And, um, an archive of, of artists who died of AIDS and also who are living with HIV and AIDS. And also they do projects, um, like art exhibitions and public programming, um, about, you know, doing prevention work, but also kind of like historical work. It's just, it's just like a really amazing intergenerational community of, of artists, you know, mostly queer people or a lot of HIV positive people. So, um. I just am so grateful for having visual aids as a community to plug into when I graduated because I I just learned so much about, about my own community's history through just going to stuff. And I met, I met so many of my friends from after college through that. Um, so that was really great that Janine connected me with them and, um, yeah.
0: What kind of events would living aids have? Visual aids. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So visual aids. Well, first of all, I my the summer I graduated from Sarah Lawrence, I was an intern slash volunteer person there, and I was mostly at the time I was mostly like digitizing slides into their archive. But also, they had these, they did these editions of little, um, little kind of trading cards that they would have queer photographers shoot of people, and then they'd put them in these little packets with condoms and and lube and stuff. And they would like have big bowls of them out at different, you know, gay bars or whatever, or different events. And so I'd be like stuffing these packets and there, there would be sometimes other volunteers that would come in that were like, you know, and people that weren't doing it for like career development, but who were just like either artist members who were in the archive or just really nice people. (laughs) So I met, I met a lot of people that way. Um, you know, just I just love having intergenerational connection. I think it's so important. And, you know, as a Jewish person, I grew up around so much of that. Like, there, you know, in my synagogue, there are a lot of generations and there are always a lot of people at our house for holidays and stuff. And then, but as a queer person, you know, you're not just, like, automatically connected with a legacy. And so I, I feel really lucky that I connected with that. Um, and then also... Um, it's sort of related to visual aids, but not exactly. So, and then at the end of that year, okay, well then, and then I, I started, uh, and okay, so then also that summer I was interning for art in general. And so I started kind of moving more, I was trying to like, I don't know, I think I was trying to get a job doing like cura- curatorial assistant work, but you really can't get a job doing that unless you have a master's degree in like either art history or curatorial studies. So I really just did a bunch of internships, like learning about the museum system and, um, and the art world. And it was actually like a really disillusioning experience. And, the, and at the same time, I started doing childcare, And that was really interesting, but, you know, also disillusioning and frustrating. Um, and then at the end of the year, I had got, you know, I'd kind of learned how to like organize a checklist for an exhibition and, and the basic administrative tasks required in organizing an exhibition i'd also i'd I'd worked both for a curatorial department of new museum and also for the exhibitions department of new museum and so um that was a really good combination of skills because i got this email and um it was looking for artists for a show about queer history that this person hugh Hugh ryan was going to curate in his apartment and you know it was sort of an informal email it was um going to be part of this event series called quorum forum and um, so that previous summer the same organization had made this thing called queer house field day have you heard of this mm-hmm. so queer house field day was sort of like a fake field day like from grade school where you know, but it was all queer it was like and the idea was that you, your team was the people you lived with and you were like a queer house and um there were a lot of queer houses at the time i feel like I don't know how big of the culture that is anymore, but I mean, I'm sure it'll always be part of the culture as long as people like can't afford their own apartments or whatever. But it felt like at the time it was a bigger deal. Um, So, okay. So everybody, and then if you weren't, if you didn't live in a queer house, like I only lived in a like two bedroom at the time. So whatever, I had like a group of friends and we all came up with like a name and we all wore the same color and you would show up with your crew. And then all the activities were like, dildo ring toss or like pin the tail I don't know pin the tail on the unicorn or like suck and blow I was really good at suck and blow I, I almost won you know have you seen Clueless? okay so it's like you, you take a card out of your wallet like in Clueless the way they did it is they had like a credit card and you would go and it, you would be sucking in so that it, the credit card was like against your lips and then you'd go to someone and then you would blow while they sucked and you'd all pass the credit card around and then like It was, like, whoever could, like, suck and blow the most so that you wouldn't have to kiss someone. Anyway, so we did it with, like, this trading, like, these, like, um, these, like, playing cards that were, like, uh, the Little Mermaid on the back. (laughs) So, anyway, it it was, like, down to the three of us, I think. I think I I I was, like, second place or something. Anyway, I was really proud. But then it was so funny because at the end of the day, everybody got a trophy, so like this group of people that organized it had made these really, they just took like a glue gun and like stuck a bunch of objects together. <laughs> it was so darling. Cause nobody knew everybody was like being kind of competitive and didn't realize that at the end of the day, everybody was going to get a prize. And then we're all like, Oh, and then, and then everybody had to go across the field and dance over to your, um, to your trophy and then dance back. And so then I think there was, it only happened like two years, I think. But then the second year I had this umbrella, this like parasol kind of umbrella. And I was dancing over to my trophy and then it got like flipped around or I, it dropped it or something, something embarrassing happened and everyone was like, oh, and then I picked it up and kept going and everyone was like, yay, it was really <laughs> cute. Um. Anyway, so, okay, so, so that there was a spirit in like 2010, like end of 2010. 10 or maybe like I think maybe queer hospital day was yeah it was it was 2000 summer 2010 and summer 2011 those two years there was so much energy for community events that didn't have anything to do with drinking or being at a bar or any uh, any business or having to pay for it like it was this kind of I don't want to say it was anarchist because I I don't want to I don't it was very like it's not like there was, like, a black block or something. You know what I mean? Like, it was, it was more like people were, like, DIY. It was, like, let's just have events at our houses to do skill shares and learn things. It was just, like, amazing. And, of course, we all burned out really quickly because we were, like, we need a funding structure and we don't want to become a nonprofit. Um, but anyway, okay, I got totally sidetracked. So, anyway, I got this email from Hugh Ryan. It was after Queer House Field Day, but it was winter. And, um, everybody, okay, so that, so there, so everybody wanted from quorum forum wanted to do something for the winter. Cause it's like, oh my God, now that pride's over and it's cold, like no one sees each other, but we don't want to go to the bar. Cause a lot of people are sober and like also bar spaces are really only good for like hookups and not as good for like making friends and community bonding. So, um, so um, Hugh had for many years wanted to do this like art show about queer history in his apartment and then when Quorum Forum sent out a call for submissions he immediately was like oh my god that would be awesome to do that for this and then they were like oh great do you want to be our like opening event like the first event of the of the week or whatever And or maybe it was like a whole month I think the first year was a whole month and then the second year was just a week but um And so we were the, so, and then I emailed him and was like, hey, I've been, you know, interning in the art world and I know a thing or two about curating. Would you want someone to help you? And he was like, yeah, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm a journalist. You know, he was also, um, ghostwriting the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. Like, he's a really interesting writer, but he, he's done some really great, um, journalistic writing. Like he interviewed Susan Miller, who's this like famous astrologer. It's really, anyway, she had a big following, but, um. He's great. He's so great. But um okay, so then so yeah, and then we did a call for submissions and everybody submitted um so we wanted people to do like their own research projects and then kind of like have art that used their research in a way. And I I was sort of, you know, coming from this art perspective of like the materials and the form, like the whole the whole thing about sculpture is like the materials and the form can create meaning. And, and audiences will learn how to read the work through the, like, materials interaction with form. Like, people tend to get a sense of what something is about from the material. Like, you know, whatever. I don't want to go into that. But, but Hugh's perspective was a little bit more, like, he wanted them to convey information through the work. And so, um, but for the first show, it was really just, like, whoever submitted got in. And he, he at the time lived in this loft apartment in Bushwick that was in the same building as the Bushwick Star, which was, I guess, I don't really know what it is, actually. I guess it's some sort of cultural center. But they had the same night they happened to have, like, some sort of, like, teen party. And the cops had found out that there was going to be a teen party. And so, when, you know, unbeknownst to us, we were expecting, like, 100 people maybe. And 400 people showed up. And there was this line out the door and it was cold as fuck. And it was, it was like, you know, busy, one of busy barefoot, one of the people, the artists, he was like finishing, he was, um, doing, he was like taping things to the floor. I think it was some sort of like timeline, I forget exactly, but he was like taping it on the floor, like right as people were walking in, like he was still kind of taping. It was really funny. And somebody had made a gingerbread replica of Stonewall, like of the Stonewall riots And um, somebody else had made another thing about police. Like, I think it was, like, throw your purse at the police. Like, it was, like, something that Velcro could stick to the wall. Like, that was was Damien Lux, I think. And then the the Stonewall people, the Stonewall gingerbread was Turtle, uh, Mariah, and Katie, I want to say. And then, um, okay, so the cops... We, we, the apartment was full of people. You could not move. There were a few performances, but it was, like, getting a little bit tight. And Hugh and I were a little freaked out. So when the cops came, we were sort of, like, relieved. Because we were like, what if there's a fire? Like, the whole community would die. And then, like, they came by to bust this other party, but they got confused with our party. And so they shut us down. And <laughs> they wouldn't let people in. And poor Kate huh, was stuck outside smoking without her leather jacket or something. And so there's a picture of someone, like, holding her, and they're, like, smoking. It's really cute. It was just such a cute night. But anyway, so that's how it ended. And then it was so funny. After the cops left, we were, like, eating the the gingerbread cop car. Like, we were, like... <laughs> like, there's pictures of us, like, sitting there eating it, being like, fuck the police. But also being like, thank you for <laughs> ending this fire hazard, getting people the fuck out of my house. Um, no, but it was nice. It was really fun. And so anyway, we realized we needed to bring it to a bigger venue so that like it could be you know, we were like, there's a real need here for the community. You know, nobody really knows a lot about not not nobody, but you know, we need to learn more about queer history. And so we um I think I asked visual aids what they thought, like where we should go. They usually had their shows at La Mama, but I think for whatever reason La Mama was booked. But we we approached Leslie Lohman and they agreed to give us I think like three weeks in the summer of twenty eleven. And so, um, Hugh and I worked our asses off on that show and like, I was the, I think he was more of the person that communicating with Leslie Lohman and I was more of the person that was like the artist liaison. Um, since I like, you know, I knew a lot of artists and then also, you know, just knew more about art and what the whole thing. And I organized all those spreadsheets and everything. And, you know, Leslie Woman would say stuff to Hugh in front of me, like, oh, Hugh, you're doing such a good job. We should hire you. And I was like, I literally need a job, you assholes. Like, it, I felt like it was like they didn't even see me. It was like so misogynist. But so, you know, I, I had some mixed feelings about the experience, but um, ultimately it was it was super exciting. Like, we, ha- we had even more people. We had 720 people show up or something. And... Leslie Loman doesn't remember this, but we had a line around the block. Like, it was really deep. Because I remember when I was in this show, Queer Threads, in 2014 at Leslie Loman, they're like, this is the first time we've had a line around the block. I'm like, biatch, it is not the first time. You know what I mean? But anyway, um, so it was really cool. We had the Hedrick Martin Institute, which is, like, this, um, like, queer youth center. Like, they have also the Harvey Milk Academy. is like It's, like, a queer high school. It's, it's all it's like, a lot of really cool resources for, like, queer youth. Um, they collaborated with us, and they had their kids do art projects that we hung on the wall, and, you know, it was really nice. There were some really high-quality things that people submitted. Um, that one, I think we did have to reject people because um, there were just too many applications. People knew about it more by then. And Hugh and I kind of at sometimes, like, butt heads a little bit about, like, what constituted like historical work and it was sort of awkward for me because I had to reject people that I had specifically asked them for their applications um where like I kind of felt like their work was like using archives in an interesting way but he was like oh but it's not conveying information so I think we sort of had a few differences on the kind of curatorial side but and then so the next year I decided instead of curating again I'm going to I had an art project I wanted to do, and so um, how are we on time? Oh my god! So I'm a good talker. So um, so th- for 2012, the summer show, we um, I proposed a drawing series about the French writer George Sand, because I had had this poetry teacher in high school that had told us there was this woman who dressed like a man so that she could publish poetry. And, you know, she was really cool and badass. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. But then it turns, I was like, there's got to be more to this story. And it turns out that, like, the biographers, you know, lit- I feel like literary biographers aren't really necessarily, like, trained in, like, gender theory or whatever. So they were all reading this person as, like, a woman who was, like, dressing in men's clothing just so that they could have privilege, and which is, like, I feel like a pretty common narrative of, like, people through history. You know, I feel like... It's, like, this, like, okay, you're just doing this for privilege. Um, but I did, so I did all this research about George Sond, and I read all these biographies. And, like, even though these biographers were, like, reporting all this, like, interesting stuff about, like, George would write to their lovers, their, like, male lovers, and, and call their, their relationship a brotherhood, or, like, George would self-refer with masculine adjectives and nouns... There was, like, all of this, like, very obvious to me, like, you are identifying as, tra- you know, you're, like, a man. <laughs> um, or at least, like, you know, a trans mass person. Um, all this kind of data. I mean, also, um, the, relationships dynamic, the relationship dynamics were really interesting to me between George Son and Frederick Chopin, um, like, like, Frederick Chopin was a little bit more of, like, the person that was being cared for and given flowers, like, kind of the more submissive person in the relationship, and then, like, George Son was sort of like, I'm gonna do all this stuff for you. I don't know, it was like, I kind of, it, I kind of saw how, like, my, my, like, quote, heterosexual relationships in high school kind of, I was like, oh, maybe that's kind of more like that what that was for me. <laughs> um, not that someone was, like, sick, but, like, you know, Chopin had influenza. Anyway. I'm getting off topic. So um so I made this series of drawings that was within the frame of the major arcana, which you know, in the major arcana tarot like the, you know, tarot cards. Um it's like the journey of the fool, so it starts out with the fool, which is like 0, and then it goes all the way to the world, which is I think 21. And, and the world is sort of about, like, starting over or, like, transformation or completing a cycle. And my friend Wesley, who I mentioned, who's this, like, gay trans man, he had taught me tarot. And so um, I, I guess I was thinking of um, how the Romantic period in France had so much spiritualism, like, or spirituality, that it was trying to bring back into the culture after the Enlightenment. And I don't know exactly if, like, George Sand used tarot cards, but there was all this, like, really macabre stuff. Like, like, like they dug up their father's skull and, like, held it and, like, talked to it. You know, there was, like, all this really, like, super gothy stuff. So I was like, great, this is perfect. So I did all these very kind of graphic ink drawings that utilized French art history and... Um, and also contemporary queer photography and kind of mashed things up together and I also used like screen caps from this like, you know, film about George Sond and stuff like that. like I was kind of creative with my source images, but um I always kind of was relating I, I I chose images from George's life, either characters or moments in George's life that related to the different journey of the fool moments, like each card. And so, um, anyway, that was, that was my pop-up museum project. And at the bottom of each drawing, I, I wrote a little like blurb. And the other thing that was part of that project was, I uh, I I was reading a lot about Patty Smith and how Patty Smith, like first I, that was when Just Kids came out. And the beginning of Just Kids, she's like, oh yeah, like I hated my breasts when I was an adolescent. And she had all these like Really kind of like transy things that she was saying, and I was like, hmm, and I found this unofficial biography of Patti Smith by Victor Bokras, and I'm totally forgetting his collaborator's name, but there's somebody else who worked with him on that book. and um apparently Patty Smith was also like really misogynist at times and it reminded me a lot of George Sand, just the way that they were like using kind of like pushing women away or like feminism away in order to like, Arrive at some sort of like masculine identity for themselves, and um, so I actually put Patty Smith's face into one of the drawings because I, I just I and that's really the first time I started doing historical mashups, and um, and getting really interested in the self and how and how there's there's this idea of like like so the George Sand project. I was sort of like actually, there's a true self inside of that story that's different than this outside narrative, and then, but I would, but like, like that was sort of the argument of that writing a little bit. It was like actually, I think this person deserves like a closer look within like trans history. But um, there, I think subsequently, I've my other projects have been sort of about the other side, which is like okay, so there's this assumption in trans like the way that trans people are talked about in the mainstream media of like you're a blank trapped in a blank or you're a self trapped inside a body and um I really don't relate to that narrative like you know as I said my childhood I I don't really recall feeling like I identified with men or or that I I don't you know I think my brother like played with Legos and everyone was like oh that's like when when Legos came out with like pink colors, we were we all kind of realized, oh, I guess that's seen as like a boy's thing. But I don't I don't really ever I didn't really have a ton of things like that. I don't know, like I didn't have like a stereotypical like trans masculine like tomboy childhood at all. Like that wasn't really my experience. Um, and so I never really felt like a self trapped in a body or a self trapped in a life at all. And um, and I and my mom was really confused when we came out because. That wasn't, you know, what she had observed. And so I needed to, like, find another way to talk about the way that the self relates with society and with history and with historical situations. And so um, the so I did another project. I guess my next historical project technically was Michelle Foucault. It was this viral Tumblr. Have you seen it?
0: Um, I looked it up before. Okay. Please
1: describe it. <laughs> okay, so... Um, so, Michelle Foucault is a mashup I did in the summer of 2014 uh, between, um, you know, Michelle Foucault quotes and Michelle Tanner from Full House Pictures. So, um, it was sort of about, like... Here, you know, her character on Full House was, like, she was always saying these things that are not childlike things to say, which I guess I didn't really think about till after. Like, she was always kind of this, like, precocious little girl. Mm-hmm. Um, like, cool dude, or whatever she, her taglines were. And then, so, um, for her to be saying these, like, really incisive academic kind of statements about the, you know, the body is the prison of the soul, or... <gasps> excuse me. Um just like really tickled me. And that was the summer that Israel was bombing Gaza a lot. And everyone was like, at least in my community, everyone was like really upset about that. And I got some emails that were like, oh my God, your blog is really like making me feel better. And I kind of felt like, okay, it's really important for me to have comedy in my work because I th- I realized that that was more of my kind of role in social justice movements was like kind of to, to like make art and make people feel good, I guess, or at least question things. Um, and then the other mashup, historical mashup I did was the Anne Frank, Justin Bieber project. Um, the video of that is called religious beliefs and the installation version, which is up right now at Leslie Loman, is called the, um, Justin Bieber's Anne Frank house. And, um, basically Justin Bieber went to the Anne Frank house in the summer of 2013 or sorry, in the spring of 2013. And it made like, you know, New York daily news headlines. It said, what the hile? And it was on tax day. And I remember sitting on the subway and the person next to me was reading the daily news and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. (laughs) It was like the perfect project for me. And I was living at the time in this, um, four bedroom, you know, queer house and, um, we always had a German person living with us. I don't know why, but there, like that room was always a German. And um, this artist named Marin Carlson was living there at the time. And when I got home from school, from I was in grad school at the time at Parsons. She had the copy of the Daily News. And it was amazing. I was like, yes, because I had been so busy all day, I couldn't go buy it. But I was finally able to read it. And she made photocopies of it for me at Cooper Union, where she was studying. Um, she was like an exchange student. And it was so funny, like, being a Jewish person talking about this with a German person. And I kind of realized both, like, between, like through her and the person that, you know, she had a friend from Germany that, or from Berlin, that stayed in the room after she had to go back. And then that person, you know, was, like, you know, a white, you know, German, blonde person. And she had these fantasies, she was lesbian, of, like, of being dominated by a Jewish woman and like for a long time I didn't know what to do with Anne Frank and Justin Bieber together and then something about when she was talking about that it like really clicked for me that Anne Frank would have to dominate Justin Bieber and um I really was interested in his his idea of she would have been a believer like he had he had written in the guest book hopefully she would have been a believer I should have said that but um, I, I I just was fascinated by this idea that her identity could be fixed and transposed into another time, and it to me it was it had so much to do with transness and this idea that you were a self trapped in a body or or that you would have or that you would be the same self with, within any time period um, because and that question just really is fascinating to me and I really go back and forth about like you know whether there is a true self. And, and I do think that, like, you know, the self is, like, the mediation between the soul and the society. I think, you know, there's something happening there where, like, the self is is kind of negotiating between both. And so I guess that's what that project was really about, was, like, investigating through satire and, and really, like, mashing up 1943 and 2013. Like, what would a conversation between Anne Frank and Justin Bieber be? And and really ending up on the idea that she's a bigger celebrity than he, than he is, and he would have to kind of like hand over the attention towards her, and um, at, like out of respect for her, and also, like I don't know that, that he would that he would be kind of more into her than she would be into him, was kind of how I ended up. I don't know that that's how everybody interprets my work, but um, that's that's definitely my intention. Is that like Anne Frank is like, you know, a badass, ambitious cool queer Jewish person who hates Germans and hates her mother and like is just taking no shit because that's who she was like if you read the diary <laughs> like they had to like she at Anne Frank when she so Anne Frank rewrote her entire diary on loose leaf paper when so they were like the government of the Netherlands was exiled when the Germans occupied the Netherlands and they were in London and they, they could still access the people through the radio waves. So the prime minister of the Netherlands came on the radio and was like, everybody should keep their diaries for after the war. Cause we're going to create this like national document, you know, national Institute on war documentation. And so, um, everyone said to Anne, oh, you should like, you know, write your diary for publication. And by this point, she had already aged two years in hiding. Like, she went from being 13 to being 15. Like, she grew a lot. People think of her as this short little girl. But you see the height chart in the house, and it's... She's much taller than me. She's She must have been, like, 5'9 or something um, by the time she died. But anyway, um, you know, she, she was wearing high heels because she grew out of her shoes. They had to find her high heels. She was, like, a sexual being. She was, like, almost an adult. Um... So she rewrote her whole diary. She had all this new political knowledge and insight and language from just developing as a human for two and a half years. And um, so there's this really cool document, like this really cool book. It's the, I think it's like the complete edition or something. It's like the, the, the something edition of the Anne Frank, Diary of Anne Frank. And they have the first version, which is her little plaid notebook. It's A, and then B is her loose-leaf pages, and then C is her dad's translation. And um, in every different language, they had to take out different things. Because, like, for example, they took out all the anti-German stuff for Germany. They took out... And then, actually, they left in a bunch of the lesbian stuff in English, which I'm really grateful for. Because, like, in the beginning of the book, she's like, oh, like, my friend... Jacqueline and I had this sleepover and I asked her if I could touch her boobs and she said no or no she like I tr- I wanted to kiss her and she said no but she said I could touch her boobs or something like that like there was some sort of like same-sex desire happening um, but anyway I just I'm I'm really I really feel like my identity feels the way I think of it is really specific to this time period like we were talking before the interview when I first came out, I came out as genderqueer. And I had friends that didn't think that genderqueer was counted as trans people. Which, like, now I feel like is, like, so fucked up. You know, I mean, I, at the time I felt like it was fucked up, but I didn't really know what to say about that at the time. And then later the word non-binary came out. Because I guess people were saying that genderqueer was too academic, which I don't understand how non-binary is less academic. To me it sounds more academic, but I, I get how it's... It's, like, I think people are, it's, like, non-binary to people is, like, we're rejecting something, and genderqueer was, like, let's construct another gender. In a way, I think people felt, started feeling really uncomfortable about, like, conformity that was happening within genderqueer culture, and how, like, a lot of it was being shaped in, I think, at least, like, the visibility of it was being shaped, like, there was this really, like, kind of white, trans mesque, like, I don't know, upper middle class image of it were like bow ties, basically. Mm. Everyone was like, bow ties are genderqueer, you know. Um, you talk about that in your closed feelings. Yeah, exactly. Idiot. So that's what closed feelings was kind of about. Um, and closed feelings is also about this this thing of gender being socially formed and being influenced by people in my life and situations and, and really like the sight of gender being clothing for me and and how like all these little decisions about clothing affect how others see me or don't and that was really like to me I was like trying to use these like comedic anecdotes to talk about this kind of social self that 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 I feel was talked about by psychologists in the 60s but people don't really apply to trans identity trans you know gender theory as much like I feel like you know psychology like Winnicott specifically was really interested in this like true self false self thing but then for some reason we accept this narrative of like the authentic self with transness and which is not to say that they're that like trans people are being fake, but, but we're, we're not accounting for like, you know, the ways that, that social life affects self-perception. Anyway, are people trying to use this room? Um, are they just waiting for the bathroom?
0: I'm not entirely sure. Cause the sign does say that it should be open oh we have a reserve we have a reserve we do.
1: anyway i just talked a lot about a lot of things <laughs> do you have any questions i do cool
0: um so in that same close feelings video mm-hmm. um there's a point when you talk about when wearing like uh, men's bend up t-shirts mm-hmm. and results in people reading you as younger mm. do you see that as like a similar like time transportation thing Um, yeah totally how has that changed as you get deeper into your 20s
1: um that's a really good question so like the time I was like most violently street harassed or it was like actually in the subway but you know what I mean like publicly harassed about like I was being perceived as like a gay boy was when I was with my, I I was at the time I was dating someone who looked very young, like who was small and had a very round face. I think that was also like a really racialized thing because he was like mixed and Filipino. But um, we were both wearing like little hats, like little kind of baseball hats and shorts and backpacks, and um, we were, you know, we had just like spent the night together and we were like kissing and everything. Or maybe we were just, like, had one of us had our arm around the other, and we were, like, sitting on the subway close to each other. And this guy, like, stood up across from us and started yelling at us. And it became clear that he thought we were, like, teen boys. And, um... I, for, I realized that my gender... Like, pe- the way people perceive me is really based on, like, who I'm with at what time. Um... Because I, I don't know that I would have... I don't know. Like, I've been read as a teenage boy before. Like, like I remember one time I was at a diner with Janine, my old sculpture teacher, and like some of her former students, right after... I think it was like a year after we graduated or something. And so maybe they thought that she was my mom, and maybe that's why they thought I was like a little boy. But like, I was called sir by the, by the you know, wait staff And... And I was like, oh, I think they think I'm like a baby, like a teenage child. (laughs) Um, But also like now I'm teaching college and that has brought up a lot of stuff for me. Like, you know, um, the person that hired me is a trans man and is also, you know, a short person that's not on T or whatever. And he, when he hired me, he was like, you should definitely have them call your professor because you look young. Like he was like, You want them to be able to like you want to you want to create a situation where they like respect you and don't try to like be your friend, which is really challenging, actually, because like, you know, I want to create like supportive relationships where people can come to me and talk to me about things. You know, when you make art with other people, like you want to be able to talk about I want I want my students to be able to talk about things that are personal to them. And sometimes like we have to have personal conversations or whatever about, like, you know, one person, for example, like, her family lived in public housing during Hurricane Sandy, and so she made a documentary about, like, how they had to carry her brother, who was, like, you know, d- disabled, like, down, like, 22 stairs, like, flights of stairs. Like, you know, like, that's personal, and also in, in her work. Um, but I also, yeah, it's like, but I also need to, like, maintain that, like, student-teacher dynamic in order to, like, create kind of, like, an equal playing field between the students, so... Um, And, like, you know, my my first time teaching, I was, I guess I was, like, 27. And um, it was really challenging, you know, like, coming into a classroom. I had never, so I I started learning video through my sculpture class in college. Like, I was allowed to take out video equipment. And then I, I had to audit a video class in order to have access to the like video editing and i've really just learned video editing from asking other students and and like the the lab tech like i I really never took a class i just started doing it and um i've had a lot of luck with lighting and stuff like i haven't really had to like do a lot of fancy things and a lot of my work has obviously been animation and animatic where i'm just scanning draw like tiny drawings And then recording voiceover with a similar microphone or with my phone, with my phone even like, it's really like no frills. So going in and having to teach camera light and sound was like extremely, I think it brought up a lot of like my gender issues because it's like this, you get to adulthood and you're like, I don't feel like I can be an adult because I never became a woman or a man. And there was no way for me to feel like I was an adult without you know, having some sort of, like, legible gender within that, like, I, I didn't know how my students would perceive my age, if they would know who the teacher was, like, you know, um, I'm a, I'm a fairly, like, performative comedic person, but I, you know, you don't want to confuse that with, like, you don't have to take me seriously, you know what I mean? So that was really hard for me, and I, I think I finally have, like, become comfortable, you know, being in front of people. But I think part of it is also that I started teaching video editing, which I have, you know, I mean, I've been doing video editing since 2009. So that's something I feel more comfortable with than, like, camera and light and sound. And then I'm also going to be, I'm going to also be teaching digital photography, which I also do but have never officially studied. So there's a lot of, like, you know, in the adjunct world, like, you kind of get hired for what you're perceived to be like you 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 get hired like i've personally gotten my teaching jobs through word of mouth like it, and through you know networking so it's it's never been like oh there's something there's a job posting it describes me i'm applying for it it's always like someone perceives me a certain way is like you can do this thing or like or they're like you fit the image of the thing i want in my department because i need another trans person or mm-hmm. or you know I needed an artist, you know, like there's, it's just, it's sort of, it's, it brings up some weird stuff about, you know, and I think any, any trans people's employment stuff is going to bring up stuff about how they're perceived and, and how you have to perform professionalism. What is professionalism? Professionalism is based on these like white, wealthy, like cisgender ideals. And it sucks.
0: How do you find, um, gender presentation and academic professionalism going together.
1: um it's like again it's like more button-ups it's like it's like button-ups no but like I get a little bit looser with it some like sometimes I'll wear like a nice t-shirt also because like sometimes it gets you don't know you, you know you layer you don't know if you're gonna get hot this is like kind of a silly conversation but you know I don't wear like leggings and I don't wear I sometimes will wear like black jeans I wear a lot of black jeans I wear I wear a lot of like uh blundstone boots I don't know I sort of just go with like sort of this like androgynous trans mask look I do my earrings thing my necklaces I wear a lot of like jewel you know like crystals I started getting really into crystals and stuff so I don't know but I I don't wear like a little baseball hat that's the one thing I will not do when I'm teaching because I guess that's when people think I look like a little boy. But I also started going gray pretty early. Like, I started going gray in my mid-20s. I don't know that it's really that noticeable from afar, but I think it's starting to be... I'm starting to look a little bit more professory. Not that I'm, like, a full professor. I'm an adjunct. But I do have the terminal degree in my field, which is the MFA. (laughs) Yeah. Does that answer your question? It does. Yeah.
0: Um, Could you speak more to the role of comedy yeah. in your art, Thank how you it so intersects much for with that. activism. Um, because yeah. even going back to, like, when you said your role in college, mm. it was, was often to make the mm-hmm. room laugh, and, mm-hmm. like, the silliness of the Queer House Field Day. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, I didn't organize Queer House Field Day, but I was gladly a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so my dad is, like, a really silly person. He makes a lot of puns. And... Um, you know, I have ADD, and I tend to, like, tune out a lot of story. Like, when I was a kid, I would totally not be listening when my family would tell stories from the day. And then they'd all laugh, and I'd say, wait, what happened? And so, you know, I was a really spacey kid. Like, I'm, I'm a pretty spacey person. Um, but I, so I think that, like... And also, I'm the youngest, so as I was getting a grasp of... In the English language and you know motor skills and all that I I think I, I saw making jokes as like a way to like interact with my family in a way that would like if I made them laugh it would make me feel good and it made me feel part of the family and it, it would kind of I would kind of like bounce it back and forth with my dad like we would just make puns back and forth kind of um, and my mom especially would laugh really hard and it, it would just always made me feel good so I think that's kind of how I got started with that and like you know I think, I think all those early childhood interactions of, like, being encouraged to draw, being encouraged to make jokes, like, those two factors have made a huge, like, enormous impact on my whole entire existence. Um, and um, I don't know. I was always a little bit of, like, a class clown. Like, I, I never minded, like, if I, like, was reading aloud in class and made a mistake, sometimes it would, it, it would be worth it to me if everyone laughed, you know, that kind of thing. And also I think it's like, as like a queer young person, it was like a kind of way to not feel like an outcast. Like, um, like I was always voted in middle school, like most creative dresser or like most unique, which was all like euphemistic for like, you are queer, (laughs) you little queer. So I don't know. I think if I like made people laugh, it gave me some sort of like power or control over like a narrative or something. I don't know. I'm just saying it out loud to try it out, but, um, but I also think it really comes from Jewish tradition, and that was the culture I grew up in. Was like, you were, you know, there was a lot of laughter in the synagogue and in Hebrew school, and you know, Jews have always used humor as a way to get through thousands of years of oppression, and that that's definitely something that I feel like is. If not genetically passed on, then for sure socialized. Like there's a there's a big tradition there, and um, and I think same with queer people. You know, like it's f- hilarious to me that like people would talk about the Stonewall riots as if it was like inspired by the queens being upset by Judy Garland's death. Like I think camp sensibility is like very humorous, and and you know I think all of drag culture has a lot of. Humor in it, and sadness too, but definitely both go hand in hand, very nicely, for Jews as well. Like you know, I was with I was in this uh, this um, dinner party of Jews recently. I had a friend that was doing this project about like Jewish conversational style, so she got a grant to like have a dinner and record it, and we sat around telling Holocaust jokes by the end, and it was just like you know really nice because these were jokes that people did like told each other while they were living through it to get through it you know and like it was so cool it felt like in the same way that it was amazing to to, like during you know when I was plugging in with like visual aids at the pop-up museum like finding these gems of queer and trans history finding like fucking holocaust jokes from people that lived through it that was just I felt so connected to my ancestors you know even though, you know, um, technically, my direct ancestors are from Eastern Europe and came to the United States before the Holocaust. Like, my my mom's family lived in Texas, I think, as, earlier, as early as the 1880s. And my grandpa, my dad's side, my dad's dad came over in, like, I think 1908 and um, came through Ellis Island and moved to Nebraska. So or I guess when he moved to Nebraska and he was older, he lived in the Lower East Side as a kid. But anyway, um, um, but, you know, every time I go to this psychic, she's like, do you have a relative that that died in the Holocaust? And I'm like, no. And every time she's, I'm like, oh, Anne Frank. She's like, yes. And so, you know, she's so convinced that Anne Frank is an ancestor of mine. And it it might just be that, like, there's a sort of, like, kinship, about like being a writer and like you know kind of like a Jewish feminist writer or whatever or like someone that's in a difficult situation or you know I feel like I'm kind of doing this alchemy of history like by 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 kind of pairing narratives together or you know I really feel like quantum physics is onto something that that the you know logic of space and time is much more you know fluid than than like what humans like kind of experience on this plane that we call reality there's there's a lot there's a lot more communication between realms than we realize and I'm really committed to doing work that kind of heals historical traumas for people people's experiences in other time spaces like I think they can feel that in a way and I definitely feel like that connection with Anne Frank because of it it kind of gives me this like it sounds kind of I don't know like I feel sometimes I feel a little bit territorial like if if I see a picture of Anne... I saw a picture of Anne Frank on, like, an ad across the street from the Whitney Museum. There was some sort of, like, billboard. I was like... I get I get really, like, upset about it because I'm like... I feel like, I don't know, I have to, like, protect her or something. It's really weird. But once you start working with a topic, even if it's something as, like, global as Anne Frank, like, she's such an international, like, literature star, you know, you start, you start to feel a little bit, like... I must rectify this. <laughs> so, I don't know. I don't I don't mean for it to be like egotistical as much as it is like I just I don't know. And also I um in the past year I've been working on learning Reiki and um kind of like healing traditions and intuition and I'm really seeing parallels between you know, you can send Reiki to the past. You can send Reiki to people in other time spaces. And it's so connected with this historical mashup work. You know, and not all of my work is historical mashups. Like, a lot of it is autobiographical or, you know, still, you know, I, I do still lives. I do portraits, things in this time space in a very, like, direct way. But I don't know. It's nice to have, have a lot of breadth to like, what I can feel like I can work on.
0: How do you feel about finding trans like transness transy things mm-hmm. and experiences and resonances like you mentioned um that patty smith bit mm. um, especially in history mm-hmm. before when people weren't identifying as trans as such or even had right. we're using language as like femme queen oh
1: yeah totally
0: um how, how do you feel like might Sort of mining that transness and that yeah, like, connection. I've been
1: thinking a lot about that this week because um, I've been listening to this one from the vaults podcast that Morgan M Page produces. and she comes across she comes up against that sometimes where um, like people identified as transsexual or they identified as transvestites. And I think it's really respectful that she she'll like address and acknowledge like this is how this person identified at the time. I'm going to choose to use X, Y, Z pronouns or like people used different pronouns for this person. I'm going to just like use she because that might be the most respectful thing I can do. You know, it's like, I think it's really challenging because, you know, in any historical situation, we only have so many options like, you know, George Sand had to use gendered language for adjectives and nouns, which we don't have to do in English, like. And I, you know, people still obviously deal with that in like French and Spanish and whatever. Like, you know, I have a, you know, I said my one of my, my uh, one of my best friends is Chilean, and she's you know non-binary, but feels really uncomfortable using you know claiming they them pronouns because she's like, but what am I going to do when I switch back to Spanish? Like, I still ha- I still have to choose between he and she. I think that people are becoming inventive with gender neutral language in Spanish with, like, Latinx and, you know, the X and everything. Um, Or I've heard of people using E at the end instead of O or A. But, um, you know, like, there's all these different constructions of language even in the same time period. So, of course, you know, it's challenging. You know, you just, I guess, like... For me, I just ask myself, like, is it is it doing more harm or good to use the same language that they used? And is it doing more harm or good to, like, project my own? I don't know. Like, I, I think I just try to do the best I can because, like, for for example, George Son, for a while I was using they, them just because I feel like at certain times they, them has meant I'm not sure what to call this person. And I think the community has kind of like gone back and forth about that because I think especially for trans women, being called they, if someone's not sure, is like a really insulting. And um, it's obviously best to just ask people. But I don't know. I don't know. I, I sometimes screw up and will accidentally say she for George Son just because no one else in the whole wide world has ever said anything else that I've heard of about George Son. So it, it's, you know, like the problem with language is that Other people have to use it too. And so, like, you know, even if I know someone's pronouns and I use them all the time, if someone comes in, especially, like, if it's, like, a straight cis person, they start using different pronouns for someone, it becomes really, really difficult to maintain the pronouns I've been using for them the whole time that I know that they want. You know, I think, you know, language is social, language is democratic. It's really hard to, like, change it just by yourself or to, like, make your own decisions about someone in another time space. But... I mean, it'd be great to, like, communicate directly with, you know, some someone's spirit <laughs> and ask them. I'm down.
0: I'm also interested in your, uh, you seem to be really about intergenerational contact mm. and relationships, um, I'm wondering if you could tell me more about that and how that was happening at visual aids. Mm -hmm. Um, And additionally, because you seem very plugged into the internet Mm -hmm. and what's going on, um, how do queer spaces on the internet, Mm -hmm. like, what's intergenerational contact like Mm. um, happening in queer?
1: It's so hard to answer this, because, like, okay, so... I think with any intergenerational relationships there's like it's at the same time it's like really refreshing and nice to meet someone in another generation and to have that connection and I mean every generation also has its own cultural norms and like ways of doing things and you know I think younger generations are have such a different relationship with technology than older generations and so like for a while I had this experience where there was this person who is like, you know, a queer artist that I know, you know, we were connected online and I would sometimes make a post that was just like totally benign and not even, not offensive or anything that anybody was like responding. Like she would just make these long comments in response. And I think she didn't realize that it was sort of socially awkward. Like there's sometimes like social awkwardness that happens or like, I think, you know, there's sometimes people, you know, and I had to say, I had to call her and be like, just so you know, like, this is how it comes off when you do these long comments. It seems like you're upset about something and like escalating something. And she's like, oh no, I was just like really interested in the topic. I think, you know, sometimes it's, I think I have an easier time connecting intergenerationally like within, I don't know. Like I think part of the reason I go to visual aids events is so I can like hug and kiss who I feel like are, are my extended family of queer art people in person. Cause I, I don't know. I think that like I've, I've tried to have closer intergenerational like relationships or friendships. And sometimes it can be a little confusing um, just cause like, I don't know, the older people are, the more they've gone through also. Like I, you know, I really naively once like, tried to pursue someone who was a lot older than I was and kind of without realizing like kind of what in like a traumatic state they were in and that like, you know, they had like not only like lived through the AIDS crisis and lost a lot of friends, but also had been like divorced after like a really long relationship. And I have no idea what that's like. And I'm not saying that like people can't have those kind of relationships, you know, in some ways I wish it, you know, they, they were more common and easier to have. But I think there's um, there's definitely barriers that are difficult to surmount as far as like, you know, just sort of, yeah, sort of that ignorance of like, I didn't live through the AIDS crisis. I don't I don't have that share. I don't or like one time, you know, I was um, I was like kind of like in a student role in the past few years. And I was talking to this older woman and she said to me, oh, I've also had a double mastectomy. And I didn't really know how to respond to that because, of course, she had a double mastectomy because she had had cancer. And I had double mastectomy because I'm trans and had access to top surgery. And so I said, I didn't know what to say. I said, oh, cool. And she said, no, not cool. And she started kind of like lecturing me about it. And it was just like really awkward because I was like, why did she try to connect with me about it if she knew that we didn't have the same experience? I don't know. There's just, I don't know why I'm where to go with this question really but I think it's like I don't know I think um I've had kind of like some ups and downs with it because I and I do have friends that are you know in their 50s and and it's awesome and sometimes you know we hang out and whatever but I think I think it's harder to like make plans with someone I don't know I I find it challenging to like have like kind of more day-to-day close relationships that aren't like different. I don't know. I think it's, it's just challenging. I think I'm really hoping that that queer generations to come find a m- easier way to like kind of systematize intergenerational relationships. Like I think the, the ball houses, like the houses in, in drag balls, it's like so genius because it really kind of institutionalizes and structures those relationships and and creates like mentorship and um you know that's like a specific community that found that model to be useful I don't know that like every community can just replicate that model but I wish that there was more discourse around this because I'm I'm a little bit stumped as to like how to how to have these closer relationships without it just being around like going to events and or like or going or having like kind of community public spaces kind of relationships like I don't know I I, I did I have at one point I've at certain points like had closer relationships with people but it it sometimes can be confusing because in queer in queer culture like you never know if something is sexual or not It's like, how the hell do you know? And then if you ask, you don't know if someone's going to get mad at you, if they're going to still want to hang out with you. So, you know, at one point, like I asked and it kind of led to the end of the relationship because it like, you know, kind of triggered somebody because they were, had some anger issues. That sucks. Um, you know, I hope we can be friends. Could be, it'd be good. And I um but you know, the brief time I did spend like being close with that person, I, I do feel like we had some really interesting conversations about trans inclusiveness in at like Mishfest. Like this person had, you know, been a big Mishfest person, but also really identified with trans masculinity. And like whenever they'd go to Mishfest they would be hanging out with like the trans men there. And, you know, they're not they're they're not Transmisogynistic. this person believes that trans women should be there i and then i i had been very judgmental towards people that had gone to Mischfest because Mischfest you know excludes trans women or excluded trans women when it was operating but i think i kind of learned more about what it was like to be genderqueer in that generation like um you know someone who was born in the 50s or 60s and um I don't know. I think I'm. I'm start. I, I started being a little bit more um, open-minded about, like how challenging that must have been, and how, you know, like she told a story where like she was hanging out with a group of friends that were lesbians at like a les- a queer bar or whatever, and someone had said, "Oh, look over there. That person, you know, took off their breasts. They had surgery," and this person I was hanging out with. Turned around was like, wow, that's really cool. Like, I wish I could do that in their mind. And then the friend was like, how fucked up is that? And so they were having these two completely different responses to somebody's trans identity and per presentation. And like, she had to like navigate that. And, you know, that sucks. That's hard. How do you, how do you like maintain being in community and also like prevent? like, oppressive dynamics. It's, like, a situation that our generation has to go through, too. Like, you know? So I think I think there's a lot of wisdom in... There's a lot of wisdom to be gained through these conversations, but getting there... I think there's so much judgment about, like, oh, older people don't understand us, or, or like... And then I think the older people are like, wow, young people really don't understand us. So... I'm, I'm, I'm kind of envious of people that have support groups that are intergenerational. Like I have a friend that goes to, I know it sounds really fucked up, but my friend goes to this cancer support group and you know, it's like for like lesbians that have cancer or that have had cancer. And it's just so nice to see them all like having these intergenerational bonds. It's so nice. I mean, I know it sucks that they had to have cancer, but I wish that there were more intergenerational, intergenerational spaces like that, that were Kind of like a weekly thing, like, like how I used to go to synagogue as a kid, but not necessarily like I don't know if I necessarily wanted to be a religious community. I'm not sure yet, but
0: yeah. Thanks for tackling that tough question. Yeah. Um, on on that thread of mentorship, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, so you. You mentioned earlier when you first started seeing like trans stuff go viral on the mm-hmm, internet and mm-hmm. become popularized. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like you're part of a network or community of online mm. trans artists? Hmm. Um, has the I internet can't... helped you find more queer trans artists when, before when you were younger you said that there was just like oh.
1: not really like i don't know how to answer that because like i think that i don't know i i used to use tumblr more than i do now like i had a phase in like 2012 or 13 when i used it more actually and i also i used twitter in 2009 before it, before it became twitter you know like like twitter and you know i think i use those two Platforms like briefly like in two in two thousand nine I used Twitter as just like a place to write jokes, like these I would make rhymes with different words. It was really abstract. Like we we're all just like art school kids. Like it was so stupid. This was before like, you know, transnational organizations had their own Twitter or like that you had to have a check mark next to your name. So we used to use Twitter to be like, you know, on campus it, we would we would make fake Twitter accounts for like the different administrators. And you couldn't, there was no like certified, you know, you you couldn't tell it was like a joke account. And so we really like (laughs) made it seem like it was theirs, but like it was satirical. So like, that was kind of the moment that I was in college and like, um, I don't really remember how people were using Tumblr that I don't really, I didn't really, I don't think I really got Tumblr that that much of the time. I'm going to sound so old to you. And then like, Um, I was dating someone that was, like, two years younger than me in 2012, and she got me kind of into Tumblr. But, and, like, I, I think I, like, there was, like, a I made, like, maybe two or three friends on Tumblr. No one that I've necessarily met in real life, but definitely people that I've, like, connected with over Facebook, or I've met people that started dating that person, and then, and then I sort of felt like I knew them, or, you know. Things like that. Or, like, my, my current partner actually lived with this woman that I met on Tumblr in college. Like, they used to live together. And we're I'm like, oh, my God, that's my Tumblr friend. So, like, whatever. You know, but I, I don't think I had, like, I wasn't really necessarily part of... I mean, I probably, like, wrote some stuff about trans stuff or, like, reblogged stuff on Tumblr. But I don't think I really was that big of a mouthpiece on Tumblr until Michelle Foucault but then I don't even know if people really associate that with me or people really are aware that that's like that I think of it as like an artist project because I think you know it kind of blends in with like meme culture that gets kind of dissociated from authorship like I think that's kind of why I had a weird relationship with Tumblr I kind of felt like as an artist I want to put my work out there in a way that like is connected to me and Tumblr was sort of more about just freeing the images from authorship and just circulation, which I think has its own merit, but it just wasn't really what I wanted for my own work. Except for, I think Michelle Foucault was sort of like the, the people's project of mine, like not like the not It wasn't like actually populist as in that it was like made by other people, but like, I don't know. It was fine that it was just its own thing. You know, and if people know it's me, that's fine. I love meeting people that have seen it and don't realize I made it. It's like the best thing. I think it's like, you know, less and less people know about it now, but a lot, you know, it's a lot of like academics and stuff. So, whatever. Um, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah. Trans culture. I don't know. I think if I had been more of like someone that was interested in testosterone, I think I would have been able to connect with that YouTube moment of like 2009 and 10 more. Because like my, so this person named Charlie who lives in the Bay Area might be moving to Philadelphia. I'm not sure. He's now, um, actually he's like a hospice nurse, which is like really cool, really cool work. Um, but he was, um, participating in this YouTube trans community, but also critiquing the way that he was perceived and like the way that masculinity, you know, was mapped on his body, you know, all that, all the kind of like, like, I feel like all of the YouTubes were kind of followed the same narrative. It was like, this is week 34. This is what my voice sounds like. I now have these physical changes. And people were like, I'm so excited to get my dick. You know, I'm so excited to like pass as male. So I can like meet straight women. You know, there was a lot of, it was that, that was like a a very dominant narrative. And I think um, Charlie was, like, really thinking about it in a critical way that was, like, you know, what is is this helping me, like, achieve the gender I want? Like, what is Like, what is the point of transitioning? Like, I don't remember exactly. I haven't watched his stuff in a few years. But I remember at the time feeling so lucky that his voice was out there so that I didn't feel like like, T was, like, the only way to participate in, like, being a trans person, and that it wasn't even for everyone, and that, like, and acknowledging that, like, when you go on T, like, you get perceived in a certain way, and, like, I think I knew from the beginning that, like, if I had went on T, and if, and if I was perceived as male, I would have been harassed for being, like, faggy, you know, which, like, is not a reason in and of itself to, like, not do it out of fear, but... I guess, I don't. I don't know. I think part of it was like, is this gonna help me date the people I want to date and like be visible the way I want to be visible? And like, I didn't know that it. I didn't. I don't. I didn't fit into this idea that my friend was pushing on me of like, the kind of like butch person who liked femme women. So, I think, and I I saw so much of that that, I think I was like maybe this isn't everything. So I think I, I was like I'm gonna wait a few years and see if I want to go on T. And I just never. Got around to that. I never felt like I need to do it or like I'm unhappy with my body. I think I felt pretty much fine, other than you know, I like how I look better without boobs, in my clothes, or whatever. But, um, I'm trying to think. I think on Facebook, it's like a supplement to real life. Like, I don't, I don't, I think that like sometimes people add me that are like trans and have and like don't know a lot of other trans people and like maybe it makes them feel like connected is the impression i get but like i don't i don't necessarily think of myself like i have a i have friends that they really think of themselves as like connectors between people and like i do see the potential for me to be that since like i have a pretty wide network but i don't i don't know that i like focus on that or do it intentionally but um I don't know I mean it would be great to use the internet in that way I think for me it's more of a place to like follow up with people and like you know find intimate connection through like chatting or like meeting up later or whatever but I think a lot of people in my life I've like really met in real life like at art events but I find out about these art events through Facebook
0: Mm -hmm. for sure
1: so you know that's a thing.
0: So then in real life, in the city, um, do you feel part of a...
1: And then there's... I forgot to say there's Instagram, too. Instagram is a big thing, too. I think that, like...
0: How is that used?
1: Well, I like using it to show that you don't have to be... Like, you can be femme and trans mask. And, like, I think whenever I make posts about that, people respond... Like, there's a lot of response to that. Like, I think... People it really resonates with people and it makes people feel like good about gender or something because um, you know a lot of the hashtags like F to M and all that it's all is you know it's a lot of that dominant cultural stuff so and I think like a lot of it is for me is about fashion and it's about like you know innovating. What, like, masculinity is and what femininity is. And I, it, I hate even using those words, but, like, I guess, like, what is androgynous style outside of, like, a neutral, this idea of neutrality. This idea of neutrality that comes from, like, white masculinity that's really boring. I'm not interested in that. I love clothes. You know, my whole childhood, I would I would just love to just, like, sit around and dress up in my mirror and, like, take pictures and then change and then. You know, like that was how I had fun by myself, if I wasn't like drawing or, you know, talking on the phone or something, or like on Live Journal. I love. Oh, that's the other thing. I loved Live Journal in high school. I I was more. of a... It wasn't really like a trans community, but it was this community of girls. Co- so there was this Live Journal community called Hot Underscore Fashion, and it was like people posting about fashion and and like their clothes and p- selfies and, you know kind of, like, helping each other find where to get cool clothes in, like, random places in the country. And then it got so big and people were so into connecting that they had to make a whole separate community called Off underscore HF, like, Off Hot Fashion. Mm -hmm. And then that community was amazing. It was, like, all these girls being, like, you know, just telling their stories and, and connecting with people about things you're not supposed to talk about and, you know, like, about... You know, what do I do about someone that cheated on me? Or, like, you know, what do I do if I had this experience with my period? I don't know. It was just... It was so nice to connect with people. And I really miss that kind of, like, anonymous connection that's not connected with, like, the ego of, like, my name. Like, like an at sign in front of it. Like, you could just make a live journal and, like, make friends on... Like, I made so many friends on there. We had meetups, you know? So... It'd be cool if there was something like that for trans people. I don't know if people experience Instagram that way. They might. Because now you can message on it. It's really cool. Anyway, that's like a long-winded answer. Um,
0: is there anything you want to talk about that hasn't been touched yet? Um, any current art pieces? Yeah.
1: Um, I So I didn't talk about my, like my art that was, it's kind of more directly about trans stuff. Um, So, you know, I studied sculpture, but in my sculpture class, I did a lot of video and drawing. I did do a bit of sculpture, uh, like using cardboard to make clothing or things like that. Or like I made a zoetrope, which is like um, this like early animation technique, like pre-film where you spin it and there's these slits and you, your, your eye puts it all like, it's like the spinning thing where the drawings are on the inside and your eye puts it all together as like a moving image. It's sort of like a gif that spins. So I made one of those, but then, um, like after I had top surgery, I started grad school, like maybe like a month after. Um, and I started working with my old clothing from like before I transition, whatever, whatever transition means before I decided to change my like gender presentation. And, um, I did a series called body party where I made my clothing into body, like imaginary body parts. Um, and like some of them were hand-me-downs from cousins or like things that my cousins had like thrown out and I like took out of the trash or whatever like um and so that was really fun it was just like I don't know and then I was dating someone and she was like oh you're making work about the body as a found object and I was like oh yeah so <laughs> I was like thank you ex-girlfriend and I like kept that in my art statement but that feels important to me that like clothes like using clothing as material to make imaginary body parts to talk about the body as a found object. Like, to me, that was really exciting. And um, and then, like, a big moment for me... Well, a big moment for me was when I made a piece out of a shoulder pad that I made into a breast, and I called it ghost boobs, because when I... So when I had top surgery, I was friends with all these trans guys, and one of them said to me, did you film the big reveal? And I was like, what? Like, he, he was, like, saying that people film the moment where they take their bandage off. And I I was like, what? Because, like, when I had surgery and I got my bandage off, it was, like, it was like Frankenstein. It was like I was so, like, I was in shock. Like, my body was in, like, physical shock that it was, like... Like, the outer limits of my body were different than they were before. And that was, like, really... Like, it was, like... I don't want to say it was traumatizing, but it was, like, definitely not this idea of, like, I finally... Have the body I always felt like I never felt like I was trapped in a body that was the wrong body. Like that's not how I felt. And so, and like I'm sh- like it's it's a question in my mind. Like if there if there was a different world, would I have had to have top surgery? I don't know. Like would I feel fine about tits? I don't know. Like I'm sure at one point in my life I did feel good about it, but it stopped feeling good when I changed my presentation. So I think eventually, like now I feel great about my chest, especially because like, I feel like I'm like, oh, I have really big shoulders and like I work out and now I have this, I don't know. I feel like good about my body in a way that I never have before. But at the time it was like really like I was feeling itches in places that weren't there anymore because like I had like ghost boobs and it was, I had to walk around and sleep with my hands on my chest for a few weeks to like retrain my brain to understand what's going on. And then I read about, um, like we were reading a lot of theory in grad school, like Lacan and Elizabeth gross. And apparently pigeons can't drop their balls unless they see another pigeon do it. And I, I'd started and like, and then there was all this stuff about ghost limbs and how like you have to trick. Your, I don't know. It, I started kind of understanding what was happening to me on like a psycho like a social psychological level and stuff. And, and thinking about so I don't know I kind of, it like the the research actually really helped me, and so anyway I made this piece ghost boobs, <laughs> and then um, I made this other piece double incision, that like they were teaching us how to weld and I was like what the fuck am I gonna do with welding I have to like use this somehow because I always felt like the metal shop was a space I wasn't really, like, allowed in as, like, a woman or a girl or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, like, not... it wasn't. I didn't feel that welcome there. It wasn't like I wasn't supposed to do it. I felt, like, shamed for not feeling more empowered to do it in undergrad. Like, I never really wanted to do wood or metal because I think socialization and stuff. But, so anyway, mm-hmm. I was, like, thinking about how the weld mark looked like my scars. And so I decided to make a chest, like, a flat like a like a top surgery chest out of metal. So I did that and then I did another one where I cut into this like shop towel that was blue and I sewed it together and I put these little felt and metal studs. Anyway, I made like a like a craft materials version and a metal version. And my friend Phoenix was nice enough to make me little brackets for the metal part. And I called it double incision cuz it's like it's like a pun about like double gender. And then um, that piece and then this other piece, Softies Get Hard. So Softies Get Hard was an accident because they were teaching us how to use this machine called the Vacuform machine. And it was like you put in this like plastic sheet, this like thin plastic sheet into this machine and you put an object. And it melts the the plastic sheet and it suctions it around the object. So you get it's how they make packaging for like, you know, like any plastic packaging you see, it's like all made of like a vacuum form machine. Like they make molds and then they mold the plastic to that and then they package up, you know, the objects they're selling in that. Um, But I, so I put this little thing of like chapstick, like this little, um, like little, those, what is it called? Like, like a a screw top kind of chapstick,
0: like, Uh, like
1: like a little tub, yeah. It was like a little, like kind of like Vaseline or whatever. And um, I put that in the vacuum form machine, and it didn't. It didn't melt the plastic all the way, and so it gave it this look, of like a couch cushion, like like there were all these like suctions, kind of. And I thought it looked like like a couch cushion or something. So I, I and you're supposed to do, you could do, use, use plaster. They use they so they had me use this as like the demo for the class. Like of course in the class clown, I'm like let's I'll do the demo. And then, like, we did the plaster cast of it, or the plaster um, uh, mm, mold. And then I flipped it over and did the other one. So I had these two opposites. And they were sitting on my desk for, like, a year. No, not a year. Maybe, like, four months or something. And finally, I was like, I'm just going to go instinctually. So I put, like, pillow ruffle. Like, I use a pillow to make ruffles around it and a zipper. And then I called it Softies Get Hard. To me, it's like... It's like a CD case from the 90s where you uh, you unzip it around the side and you go like this and it fits together. But everybody else sees it like a bra, which I think is really weird. Like ruffle, like, like they think it's like nipples in the middle instead of the lip gloss thing. And then it was interesting to me because when I showed the um, ghost boob one at Leslie Lohman, it was hung a little bit low. Like for me, it was like chest level, but for other people, it might have been like dick level. They saw it as, like, like an athletic supporter. And so it taught me a lot. Both of those experiences taught me a lot about, like, how you really have little control over the meaning of your work and, and like, and it's read differently in different spaces. Mm. And so that's something I'm going to hold on to. But I, I wanted to say about Double Incision, I'm so proud because someone saw it in the show that Gene and Samatina curated, and they posted on Instagram, they were like, oh my God, this piece like makes me feel so good about myself. It's inspiring me to have top surgery. And this person had top surgery because of that piece. And then my yoga teacher told me about it. She was friends with that person because she saw their Instagram. She's like, oh, I know that person. And so she, my yoga teacher pulled me aside and she was like, thank you for being an artist. Keep doing what you're doing. And I was like, oh my God. So I put that in the little jar of like things to remind myself about when I'm sad anyway that's like mostly a lot of what I wanted to say um I have more I also I also am a writer I don't know if I talked about this at all but um I'm writing I've, I've written like a, a short story called Tea for Tea about like two trans people having sex and and all the things that the narrator is thinking about while they're together and on all the kind of like Stuff that comes up for them, like a lot of stuff from my childhood about like being bullied, and um and how like girls would expect me to like give them massages, but wouldn't would like exclude me, and it was like a way that like my ability to like do healing stuff was like kind of like exploited. Like all of these things that came up while I was like on this date, basically. So I'm kind of um, building on that. I'm I'm trying to like write more short stories and kind of connect it with like family family stories and to write about like the situations that people find themselves in, in their lives and how they deal with them. And also like, I don't know, trans relationships. I think it's really important to have more models for that. And I don't know, I'm realizing like, you know, I have to like kind of be visible. Like I have to put out their, my experiences so because I think a lot of people it resonates with them so I'm excited about that
0: what audiences do you imagine um,
1: like reading my work
0: yeah
1: well like I think that trans you know obviously trans people we want to see ourselves reflected back to us I think that's like an important number one audience to have in mind I also, you know, want cis people to, like, have narratives available to them that aren't... Like, you know, so, like, whatever. Like, a lot of us have read, like, Janet Mock, Rena Finding Realness. And it's super exciting to have this, like, amazing person talk about her experience. But also, you know, she talks about... Like, I her whole narrative is, I always felt like this. And I was always a girl. And it's this kind of very clear binary story that you know and she acknowledges all in all of her writing that she has like pretty privilege and that she was able to use that in order to like do sex work and fund her surgery and all that kind of stuff and so I want there to be more narratives for anyone out there just about like the nuances of of trans experience that aren't so like kind of standardized in that I was always like this kind of narrative both for trans people and cis people, I think it's important because, you know, people, I think a lot of people think that they know a lot about trans people, but they really just know about this one idea of this like binary, you know, trans men and trans women. Like the other day I was watching this video that this media company produced about like trans visibility and how there needs to be more trans visibility in the media in in, like film and television specifically. And I looked at the link and it, like, you know, how they have to label all the articles and stuff shorter. They called it visibility trans men, trans women. And I was like, that is not everyone. You know, like, I was wondering, did they have other versions that were just women or just men? Like, why, why was it like, they felt like they had to call it trans men, trans women? Like, why couldn't they just say trans people? Cause I guarantee there's people in that video that like are not non-binary, you know, or they should, or they should have people What? and it's shorter. Like why make it longer if it's going to be more untrue? I don't know. So I don't know. I'm hoping that like, as, as a teacher, I'm like, look, I'm like at the beginning of every class, I say, raise your hand if you've ever met a trans person, maybe one or two people will raise their hand. And I say, now everyone raise your hand because you've met me. And so like, I don't know, even if I'm not doing the kind of organizing work I originally set out to do, like, I think for me, it's enough to just kind of like, you know, I I do think that it to a certain degree makes space for other people to be visible as myself in the, in a way that's like authentically me, even though I don't believe in authenticity. (laughs) So that's what I'm trying to do right now. It might change. Thank you. Um,
0: I don't have any more questions. Yeah.
1: Um, how long have we been going? Uh, For almost three hours. About two and a half. Two and a half. Okay. Um, what else do I want to say? Um, I could talk about what I'm working on right now. Please. So right now, um, I just finished a residency at the NARS Foundation in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. And, um, I was working on a series of drawings that kind of turn out to be like little, um, like almost like little storyboards or like little film strips or something. It's kind of these little drawings that I mount, I I mount on the back of acrylic, like, you know, kind of plastic, excuse me. And, um, I've been obsessed with this self-defense manual called looking forward to being attacked from 1977. And it was made by this police Lieutenant in Tennessee. And he has this very weird idea of what sexual assault is and that it's like this stranger danger thing, which is very like, I think historically specific to the seventies where there was a lot of like serial killers and people abducting women on the street. Um, But like, it's very much targeted towards this like bourgeois audience of these white women in these kind of like, you know, shopping mall, you know, or what's it called? Like shopping centers and like this kind of like domesticated or like office assistant kind you know, these kind of bourgeois situations. Um, And also like the photographs are so strange because they have these, kind of non-actors acting out these scenarios where they're being attacked. And some people, sometimes people are smiling because it looks like it's, like, an awkward photo shoot. And I sort of feel like I don't trust this, like, cop to be, you know, doing something on behalf of women. Like, it just makes me feel so icky to think about somebody who, like we know, instigates violence to be supposedly doing this anti-violence work. And and it's like, he, you know, as a cop, he's... he's um, you know finding these crime scenes and then he's like but let's recreate it in a photograph like what like he's creating he's like recreating these like violent scenes so that for his visual pleasure it almost feels like even though i know that that technically he's supposed to be preventing this stuff from happening but all the writing in the book feels like it's the language of advertising like it feels like copy like it's like kind of satirical or or like kind of like a knee-slappy it's like If you get him this way, it's, it's, he has this kind of like victim blaming idea of like, if you act really tough, then like no one's going to attack you, which I think that like a lot of self-defense people, you know, promote this idea, but it just feels so gross to hear from this like police guy. Anyway, so I've been juxtaposing the images, I've been drawing them for a few years, ever since I did this um, residency at the Vermont Studio Center is when I started this project and um i've been now i've been juxtaposing the images with film stills from commercials and um even though i know it's like not in the work yet i feel like a lot of where the work is coming from is about like kind of um like call out culture and queer culture and how um it's like it's like the uh, like the way that people you know, are able to respond to sexual assault can also be really easily utilized by abusers to isolate and exclude their victims. And um, I don't know how I'll get to that, but I'm hoping that, like, the more I kind of, like, follow this line of inquiry in this work, I'm, I'm just really interested in talking about I mean, I loved, I guess my work is a lot about these like really fucked up things like the Holocaust and sexual assault and like finding the humor somehow. And, but not, but like, you know, punching up. Like, not, not, not ever making fun of people that don't have power, but like making fun of the power, the powers that be. So, um, it's, but it took me such a long time to get to a place where I was allowing myself to make this work because I was so afraid of, of like, someone being like, this is fucked up. But also, I you know everyone that, that I've shown the work to that's seen it is like, this is so funny and radical and like feminist. So, I don't know, it's it's not it's not always like fun and games, like it's not always the easiest thing to make art. I think, you know, we we go through cycle. At least I go through cycles where I feel more or less confident, or or you know, like if I have a block, it's often about like an emotional issue that I have to then deal with in my work, and that's that's not that's not easy. So, um, to everyone out there who's making art, you know, I'm with you. (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) That's all I have to say.
0: I think that's a great ending now.
1: Awesome. Thank Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for your story. Yeah.